Greetings and salutations. You've successfully arrived at the bloody, disgusting network. The passage of time will now bring you to something strange, unique, and idiosyncratic. Have a good time. Listen to this. This is the tape I found downstairs. It has been a number of years since I began excavating the ruins of Kandar with a group of my colleagues. Now my wife and I have retreated to a small cabin in the solitude of these mountains. I believe I have made a significant find in the Kandarian ruins, a volume of ancient Sumerian burial practices and funerary incantations. It is entitled Naturan de Manto, roughly translated Book of the Dead. From the gnarled woods of Michigan to the sun-kissed skyline of L.A., we are Halloweenies! You said, I hope you understand when you read this letter that you're better off without me. Comes around me in stormy weather. Stormy weather. It always surrounds me. Greetings and welcome yet again to Halloweenies. Evil Dead podcast for this season. And this episode, folks, we are going to be covering our, this is basically our second part of our Army of Darkness uh, coverage. If you've not listened to the first part, I implore you to, because we've got so many details about the pre-production and production of Army of Darkness, as well as our feelings surrounding the movie, where we were when we first saw it, the tone of the movie, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's a terrific long episode that you've got to watch how to watch, whatever you, however you want. Maybe some people, you know, some people when they hear, they see things. So maybe when you're listening to the episode, you're seeing certain things, like our handsome faces. But uh, please listen to the episode first, because in this episode, we're going to be talking about the distribution of Army of Darkness. We're going to talk a little bit more about one of the co-writers of the movie, and then we're really going to go deep on the cast and crew, the music, the special effects, and of course, give out our Final thoughts. Before we do that, let's go around really quick here and, and introduce ourselves. I am one of your co-hosts, Justin Fake Shemp Gerber, and I'm pleased to be joined by my brother, and his name is Wolfman Mac Renomicon. Hi. No <laughs> last name. No Gerber here. Uh, you just said brother. I mean, I guess we got to spoon feed the fans out there. Well, you could have <laughs> been my half brother, maybe a half brother by my uh, on the mother's side, on our mother's side, and oh, okay, you know, different okay. last name. Well, well, sorry to sorry to upset everybody. I am I, I'm a full brother, Gerber. Gerber is my last name. There we go. And uh, coming in on the uh, the south south side of us here, coming in hot. Uh, this is Mike Death Coaster Vanderbilt. Nice, nice, nice. And last but not least, the uh, the maestro himself. Oh, the maestro. Uh, Elaine, would you just... Uh, this is Michael Miniac Ash Rothman, ready to talk more army. Ready to go back to battle. I'm ready to go back to battle with the uh, Deathmobile that Vanderbilt mentioned. And what better way to start off talking about Army of Darkness by talking about just how the hell we were ever able to see it to begin with. Mike Vanderbilt, let's go back to Professor Noby's study and talk about the distribution of this movie and how how it came to see release. More complicated than it ever needed to be. I believe And I did all this research, and I'm still not 100% on what happened here. (laughs) 
So, as we discussed in previous episodes, the title of Army of Darkness had been around as far back as 85, when Irvin Shapiro took out ads in the trades announcing Evil Dead 2, Army of Darkness. Drafts of Evil Dead 2 that found Ash back in the Middle Middle Ages. So, in 1987, Raimi submitted a treatment for Darkman, which we discussed in our previous episode, to Universal Pictures. The Greenlit Project gave Raimi a budget of $14 million, which is the largest budget to date. And Darkman was a success in the summer of 90, debuting at number one. So now Evil Dead 2, which comes out, uh, is that 86 or 87? 87. I haven't had a moment. Uh, it was a success overseas, so Dino De Laurentiis, who financed that film, was more than happy to finance a sequel. De Laurentiis had, um, also had a multi-picture deal with Universal. Mm-hmm. So the stars aligned, and, or so it would seem, and Army of Darkness became one of those films alongside the Christian Slater classic Cuffs, and what would eventually become U571, Hannibal, and Red Dragon. Can we pause here for a second? I, I, I got to talk about, of course, a minute three, the plot to the movie Cuffs with Let's Christian Slater and Bruce Boxleitner. I'm trying to remember this. I know, Rothman, you're a big Slater head, so correct me if I'm wrong. So there are, in this world, this, there are police officers, but then they start to hire, like, Amateur police officers to join the force. That's why the young Christian Slater is able to join. Do you remember the plot of this movie? It's been a while since I've watched it, um, but yeah, they it's a it, it's unique uh, of a it's a unique law enforcement, uh, the patrol special police. Uh, so I don't know. Yes, um, you think it would be like a demolition a little, man it, movie, like in the future? But it's, no, it's just supposed to be some weird normal no. thing that's going on. All right, sorry, Vanderbilt, you were on a great oh, roll there, no, but please, I, uh, I we had to talk about Bruce A. Evans' uh, cuffs. Go ahead. You know, I've never seen it, and I, I meant to watch it for this episode because it's been on my short list for a while. Is it any good? Uh, no, it's not. Uh, um, I will well, say... Cuffs? Yeah. No, no, cuffs is fun. It's a fun movie. I remember Mac- enjoying it as a kid, yeah. yeah. I'll take Pump Up Mac- the Volume. Mac- you know what I mean? I'll take... Uh, I love Pump Up the Volume, but Mac and I used to joke about us making a cuff too. I want cuffs too. <laughs> oh my you know? God. Bring back Tony <laughs> Goldwyn. Bring back, more cuffs. you know... Yeah, more cuffs. You can't bring back Goldwyn. Um, Doesn't oh. Goldwyn get killed at the beginning of the movie? No, he. but uh, he, he's injured. Was it so. Box Lightning? That's oh, okay. Okay, well, I apologize. We were, we were yeah, leagues no. ahead of Scream where we were going to have him come back as, as a ghost <laughs> informing... <laughs> Informing mm-hmm. him, ghost cuffs, ghost cuffs, yeah, ghost cuffs, ghost cuffs. cuffs. Better than ghost cuffs again. I'm sure. Check out cuffs now on VHS. All right, go ahead, Vanderbilt. With, so I, I think I, I jumped, I stepped on your foot because you, you mentioned something very important about certain I, sequels that were produced by Dino for Universal. I believe. Yeah, he had a big deal with them. So Army of Darkness initially budgeted eight million dollars and was finally budgeted at twelve million dollars, with Universal ponying up half of that. De Laurentiis the other. So Campbell and Ramey and Tapert would eventually go one million out of pocket to complete the film, mostly to shoot the S-Mart ending and the witch sequence at the castle, which was originally a much larger scene that you can see storyboards from on that Book of the Dead website. Uh, we talked about most of the summer. Most of the filming takes place in the summer of 91, which it kind of recalls your... Uh, it, Especially since Army Darkness doesn't get released till February '93, this really recalls the original Evil Dead for me. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to hear you guys' thoughts on this about how you know it took him from '79 to '83 to get it done. You would expect by Army of Darkness, and especially with how well, how smooth the shoot for Evil Dead Two went, how long it takes for Army of Darkness to get to the screen. If you guys have any thoughts? Well, on I think that. the the shoot for Army of Darkness was not half as problematic as getting it out there. 
at the yeah. end of the day. When you think about the months and, and the months and months and months of shooting here and there for Evil Dead under less than ideal circumstances, at least this one's being overseen by a big studio. You know what I mean? Right. But I do think the distribution of it is the, is the true nightmare to tell. So how did that happen, you say? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Dino De Laurentiis owned the rights to the character of Hannibal Lecter as DEG financed and released Manhunter. You can also go check out our episode on Manhunter, where we touch on this as well. That's uh, patreon.com backslash Pod to listen to that episode. So Manhunter flops in 86, but then Orion wants to do an adaptation of Sounds of the Lambs, but they need the rights to the character. And Dino De Laurentiis put it in his contract that he he saw Hannibal Lecter as a potential big-time character. So he put it in his contract that he had you know rights over that character. Anytime anybody makes a Hannibal Lecter movie, they he, they got to come to him. Surprisingly, Orion goes to Dino, and Dino lets them have the rights for free. Ugh. Ugh. Well, yeah. Dino. Dino. So Orion files for bankruptcy on December 11th, 1991. And then in March of 92, Sounds of the Lambs becomes a hit and an Oscar winner, becoming one of three movies to take home the Big Five Awards. You guys know what the other two movies are? It happened one is- night and uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Yeah. Oh, nice. Thank you very much. I know all the prestige stuff, uh, Vanderbilt. I-, I leave it to you for the <laughs> the true troll 70s. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody once said the movies Mike Vanderbilt likes have all the production value of a driver's ed film. <laughs> <laughs> that's but that could be very endearing because i do love a lot of those movies <laughs> but uh and it's funny it's ironic because orion had released platoon Amad- uh, and amadeus mm. and dances with wolves which are all best picture winners yeah but and you know King- they weren't uh making the big money i guess some of those movies cost a lot to make too yeah well king's dominion orion's bankruptcy Led to the delay of the Dark Half. That's right. Dark Half, I think, was made in 91 and didn't come out till 93, from what I remember of our research. Yep. Is that right? Along Mike? with Clifford and Car 54, Where Are You? Oof. Wow. Um, you know, a lot of people love Clifford now, and I love Martin Short and Charles Grodin and literally everybody involved in that movie. I watched it a couple years ago, and maybe I had to be there. Maybe I had to be there. I don't know. <laughs> There's a couple know. scenes that are really funny, but it is, it's a slog to get through, yeah. I feel. It is. So Thomas Harris completes the novel Hannibal, and De Laurentiis gets first crack at the rights due to that clause in Dino's contract. And that's why, you know, Ryan was coming to him to use him in silence. De Laurentiis purchases the rights for a record $10 million, and that novel, Hannibal, is released in 1999. So Universal and Dino end up over all of this in a tug-of-war over the rights to Hannibal and the character, the Hannibal the book, and the character Hannibal Lecter, but Sam Raimi needs $3 million to finish Army of Darkness. The Army of Darkness ends up a bargaining chip between Universal and Dino De Laurentiis. They're Universal essentially saying to Dino De Laurentiis, you need to, you need to work with us on this Hannibal deal or we're not going to release your movie. So, so crazy. I read about Army of Darkness in the August issue of Fangoria, which came out in July, and it was intended to be released in August of 92, this goes back and forth. They finally settle it, and Army Darkness ends up being released in February. Dumped, essentially. Yes. In February Dump of nineteen ninety three, in February of nineteen ninety three, and then Hannibal ended up being a joint production between MGM, who bought up Orion's catalog, Universal, and Dino. And I have a quote. From oh, and by that the way, issue. Vanderbilt, how many years later was Hannibal? Eight years later. It was an eight, eight, eight year eight, project. Eight. 
when I, in thinking about just how time moves, like who I was when I was, you know, 12 versus who I was when I was 19, like that's just <laughs> wild. It, yeah. It's a another, lifetime. it's an, it's a lifetime. Absolutely. You know, in the re- last episode of Vanderbilt, you posited how people have the, the mental capacity to make a movie. I can't even imagine having to be behind the scenes of these production studios, having to maneuver Deal with way all this rigmarole, movies. right? Oh, God. Over dumb shit. It's always over money. Of course. Well, to be fair, I mean, it was only two years after the book. So, like, it's it's almost like they yeah, were kind of waiting is, like, around They started for... this Hannibal, the rights to Hannibal eight years before the oh, movie true. came out. That's what I'm saying. It's crazy how this stuff doesn't come to fruition for, like, a decade, you know? But I imagine a lot of it was on Harris because he took forever to write the fucking novel. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Crazy stuff. Yeah. But our biggest fear, producer Rob Tappert admits, is that our film won't come out when it should. It's a summer picture, and it's a crime if it doesn't open then. And <laughs> I, I, I believe that because I have this idea of an alternate universe mm. where Army Darkness comes out in August of 1992, which famously, when we were growing up, was it was a it was a dump month, but not like February. It's just where they put out all the trash, all the good trash, the action movies, uh, the horror pictures, because it was you know to get that last gasp of people who are off school for the summer. And I do believe that. Bruce Campbell and Sam Raimi's career may be a... I mean, they eventually ended up being okay. But this stalled them out for another couple of years, it felt like. Yeah, for a while. For, for the movies, at least. Yeah. Let's say it did. Let's say it did come out in that August of 92. Mm-hmm. Here's what it would be up against. Let's see if we could handle some of these. You don't have to go yes or no, but here's some of them. Uh, we got Three Ninjas that, that month. Bond um, theaters. <laughs> Raising Cain, uh, the famous film before the franchise that does Chicken Fingers. <laughs> Chris, Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven, which was oh, would have been August man. 14th. Right. Whispers in the Dark, I don't know that one. No idea. Digstown. Oh, Louis Gossett Jr. and James Woods. Good picture. Hmm. Uh, Johnny Swade, Single White Female. Ooh, speaking Bar- Bridget Fonda. Bridget Fonda. Stay Tuned, uh, Peter Hyams. Peter, Peter Hyams. <laughs> yeah. Peter the Hyams great John Ritter and, and Pam Dauber, I believe, are in that. Oh, Pam Dauber from uh, Mark and Mindy. Mark and Mindy. Stone Cold Facts. Mark Harmon's wife, by the way. John Glenn's Christopher Columbus, The Discovery. John Glenn, who directed five James Bond movies. Yeah. Uh, Little Nemo, Adventures of Slumberland, which is great. Oh, so trippy. <laughs> Honeymoon in Vegas, or, and then Ooh. here's what it probably would have actually really been a, a, up against in terms of its genre. Pet Cemetery 2 and Fire Walk With Me, Twin Peaks. So, um, oh, Army Darkness wins. It's a hit. I think it, it's the counter-programming to all of that stuff. I think when you look at all those other movies, they, they have name recognition. And I think that mm-hmm. the big risk that, that they took with Army of Darkness was was cast. It's still, obviously, it was the 100% the right choice, but you cast Bruce Campbell and you look at those other movies and they more or less have established people from at least TV you know, at the time. Mm-hmm. I, I still don't know if this would have been a big hit. I don't know I, either. I don't know. It's, it's hard. I do think it does better than... It does know. in the doing. You know, yeah, sure. Yeah. But mm. I don't think it makes as much as Darkman made. I still don't no. think it makes that. I don't think it hits that. Maybe it makes another ten million. How about that? Maybe it makes thirty, thirty-five million. Maybe I just see that. I, I, I think that changed the trajectory of everybody's careers. But everybody ended up all right, and they're all rich now and doing Marvel movies. They're all doing just fine, yeah. But what if? I mean, I remember reading about that in '92 and not really understanding it. It's just such a, especially when but, it deals with. It's so funny to me because of the way we adore Manhunter, how it intersects in this in in the world with Army of Darkness. Bizarre. I know, because if Manhunter was a hit, this would have been a whole different trajectory for Army of Darkness, too, because the rights for that would have been handled totally different than they were for, yeah. for Silence, and, you know? 
And because I don't know where else we'll put this, one of my favorite Dino Lidorantis stories is that he wanted, famously, infamously wanted uh, this. There's that little skull that's laying on the, the ground of the graveyard that opens up its mouth. Oh, yeah. When he's walking and through it. He famously wanted to, we got to have the skeleton say, a fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, I hate producer interference, but I would have laughed my ass off if that skeleton laying on the <laughs> well, ground opened its mouth and screamed, fuck you. I'll hilarious. tell you, whenever I see it now, I hear it in my head in Bruce Campbell's voice, because Bruce Campbell has told the story of that skeleton just going, a fuck you. A fuck you. I mean. And it cracks me oh. the fuck up. <laughs> It, oh, that would have been so funny. Dino, you're onto something. That's why he he was worth $120 million before he passed. He was onto something because every line that is whispered in the back of the ADR, the, the, all oh the skeleton God. voices, it's, it's so just comic gold. <laughs> Heck, yeah. I watched it with the, I watched Henry Darnes with the closed captioning on mm-hmm. yesterday. And oh, there was brilliant. stuff that I was picking up that I never really even noticed before. I, oh, I cannot recall so now, funny. but all just, the skeleton the sh- stuff. Yeah, all that the shameless inspired, the shameless like, puns is yeah. just so terrific. But do we have um, so uh, my, one of my favorites? We got plans for you, girly girl. Yeah, <laughs> Rob, go ahead. Well, did you want to talk a little bit about the rating and like also the end? Like, yeah, go cause, ahead. Yeah, because originally, you know, I think that they the the MPA like got revenge in a way because mm-hmm. it was like, well, Evil mm-hmm. Dead was unrated, Evil Dead Two is unrated. They all, you know, they wanted to give it X ratings for all that. And then, you know, Campbell talks about this in one of the docs on, on Shot Factory and also in, um, throughout these books about how it was just like, it was to the point of absurdity that they were talking about like this being rated NC-17. It's like there's like we were just discussing there's skeletons That's fucking insanity. talking for Christ's Man. sake. I know. You know, there's only one bloody sequence, really. And it's when the blood geyser comes out of the pit. And then That's there's it. really none. There's really nothing else. It's just just almost maybe disturbing stuff. Well, it, it really sucks because it's like Universal really wanted this to be PG-13, which I think also would have helped. In I'm terms glad of you brought it. that yes, up. Yes, hundred percent. You're one hundred percent right. That's right. Yeah, that would have made a big difference. I which think. is funny. It's really the only time I, I'm actually like on board with it being PG-13 because it doesn't didn't need blood and gore. I think it still works. It's just a really funny, fun it's not, medieval adventure film. It's totally it's not that bloodless, kind of movie. Really, it's totally yeah. bloodless when you think about it. Well, there yeah, is what they cut out the one scene of the blood hitting the wall in the pit. That's one of the shots I remember from the director's cut, mm. and it's mm. you know minimal. But that was one of the things they cut to try and get this PG thirteen rating, which they didn't get, oh. and which is ridiculous that they couldn't. I know it. It feels like a PG thirteen movie. This does not feel like an R rated movie, even with the director's cut. It doesn't. I mean, granted, the director's cut has a sex scene, and there is blood that comes out of the pit, but. Even then, this, but the it sex still feels like it. Ta- for it's a so, horror movie, very tasteful. Oh, absolutely! Like if this is released now, it's PG thirteen. Oh, hundred yeah. percent, hundred percent. There's yeah. worse <laughs> stuff on fucking AMC. That's that's like TV fourteen or whatever the hell it is. So yeah. fucking Euphoria, man. Oh, yeah, well, that's, that's true. Well, that's oh, rated X. Right that's rated X. Yeah, but yeah, so the rating def- definitely didn't help. And then like Universal really wanted a different ending, which is why they shot that. Two minute scene, or that, or that, not the two minute scene, the, the scene at S Mart, yeah. which only took two days for them to film. Which, which I'm those fine guys, with once again. I know the guys hate it, but that might be my favorite scene in the whole fucking movie. I, that's the movie I want to see. I, I love that scene. I have no issue with the ending at all. That works 100% for me for, that, for this movie. Oof. You mentioned the distribution, Mike, you mentioned about the ratings board and everything else. Oh, so at the end of the, the day, this thing cost, you know, 13, 14 million dollars to make. 
actually it cost eleven million, but then you said out of pocket, it basically came to about the same amount that Darkman cost. But while Darkman made about fifty million dollars worldwide, Army of Darkness only made around twenty million dollars, which is a sixty percent dip. Yikes. Now, you know, so that was a tough beat for them at the time. Would this be a good spot to talk briefly about the poster art? Go ahead, please. Because uh, we got to talk about John Bolton, who did the artwork for the official US one sheet and the uh, comic book cover, that greenish one. That do you guys remember the Jackie Thomas show? With Tom yeah, Arnold briefly. That was the, wasn't uh, yes the Tom Arnold show that he did and they, for ABC. Yeah, because Brecken Meyer was on that show and he would always wear an army that Army of Darkness T shirt. Oh, weird. I if you, and I cannot find any footage of this, but I remember, you know, being 12 or 13 watching thinking like, oh, I'm in on something like that. Well, God, there's only 10 episodes of that show, I think, so it shouldn't be that hard to find <laughs> on YouTube ran, now. I thought it ran longer than that. No, nah, I think it was, a, it was a one and done show. John Bolton, uh, British illustrator. He worked with Dark Horse Comics, Clive Barker, Neil Gaiman. Uh, what do you guys think? Of this poster, because I think it absolutely captures the tone of this film perfectly. I know Bruce Campbell seems to have his misgivings about his smirk. I, I his, love it. I mean, that, his Frazetta esque physique. I remember seeing for years this VHS cover in the stores and not once thinking. A, it's Bruce Campbell, and B, it's tied to Army to to the Evil Dead films. <laughs> and then finally, when we got, I was like, "Wait, this is Evil Dead Three? Like this <laughs> is the?" I, I was just so perplexed. But yes, I do think it absolutely captures the, the film a hundred percent. And looking back on it now, I, I, I really love it. But I, I do love all the other artwork too, though. It's doing the same thing that those vacation movies, the National Lampoon's vacation movies, were doing with like the the over the top. Conan the Barbarian esque, yeah. you know, artwork that was going at the time, mm-hmm. and, and what's the tagline again? Out of gas, out of time. No, out of time. No, low on, uh, surrounded by evil, low on gas. Oh my god, I should know this fit out. I know. Wait, it's, it's trapped it's in tra- time, surrounded by evil, low on gas. Terrific, terrific. You know, and then we should talk briefly because it was Enzo Schiatti who I believe designed the Evil Dead Two poster, uh, who we discussed on our Demons episode. He does a lot of great. Italian posters. Yeah. He did a European poster that actually incorporates the Evil Dead 2 skull into the Army of Darkness poster, which I thought was very cool. I also really love the director's cut, though, which is even more over the top of, like, the ash with his arms in the air. <laughs> like, just a ripped I, chest. I couldn't <laughs> figure out who did that, but I'm assuming it's John Bolton as well, because Bolton did, like I said, the US-1 sheet that, uh, the, what... Issue one of the comic adaptation, which I believe was maybe intended to be uh, the poster at one point. It wouldn't surprise me if he did that one as well. Fantastic stuff here. Anything else to add about the distribution here from anybody before I move on to our next part of this uh, section? The resounding, get on with it. (laughs) And and I will get on with it, I promise. You remember in that last episode, everybody, when I said to remember the name Ivan Ramey? Remember, Remember that? Remember that moment mm-hmm. so many years ago when we recorded the episode? Well, there's a reason why I did that. It's because uh, he co-wrote this movie with his brother. And in addition to co-writing a number of Raimi flicks, including Darkman, which was Raimi's movie before this, he also worked on Spider-Man 3 and Drag Me to Hell. However, do you know what Ivan Raimi's day job is, anybody? A dentist or a lawyer or something, right? Like- he's in the medical profession. He's a doctor of osteopathic medicine. What a loser. No, um, <laughs> according to some website I went to, 
Osteopathic medicine provides all of the benefits of modern medicine, including prescription drugs, surgery, and the use of technology to diagnose disease and evaluate injury. It also offers the added benefit, hands-on diagnosis and treatment through a system of treatment known as osteopathic manipulative medicine. Osteopathic medicine emphasizes helping each person achieve a high level of wellness by focusing on health promotion and disease prevention. He also works as an emergency physician right here in Chicago. We got to track him down. He's probably at Northwestern right now. Let's go track down Ivan Ramey, have him stop treating somebody, and, and uh, talk to us about uh, Dragon <laughs> Writing of Evil. Well, you know why he's, you oh, know, they you... wanted. Well, I was going to say, he wanted Scott Spiegel to come back to co write it, but he was writing The Rookie. Starring? Charlie Sheen and Clint Eastwood. That's correct. Not to be confused with The Procedo, starring Sean Mark Connery Harmon. and Mark Harmon. Mark Harmon. Second Mark Harmon mention of this episode, by the way. <laughs> That's true. Just, we pulled it off. He played Ted it. Bundy, too, didn't he? Didn't Mark Harmon play Ted Bundy? Uh, maybe in a TV movie. Yeah. No, I don't think, no, I don't think he did. The Deliberate Stranger, right? Maybe he was playing somebody else. Yes. Oh, no, no the- I'm, I'm thinking about Jeffrey Dahmer. Yes, I think he did play Ted Bundy. Hey, yeah. look, they're both handsome guys. What can I say? <laughs> um, but I want to talk about Ivan Ramey because Ivan Ramey... On the Ash vs. Evil Dead commentary, he, along with his brother Sam, believe it or not, his brother is Sam Raimi, they talk about a couple Army of Darkness sequels that never came to pass. And I found some of these were pretty fascinating. I'll, I'll mention these. If anybody else has any other ones they've heard about, please do. But the first one, Sam Raimi says there was an idea that, that Ash is a documentary filmmaker. And that one of the possibilities was going to be him capturing his own journey through life. Then Ivan Raimi says, yeah, he... he he travels cross-country to sell his documentary to explain the importance of his story being told. And nobody thought it was a very important story except for him. He was an emo, he was like an egomaniac, which some of that kind of does bleed into where Ash versus Evil Dead goes. Another one would have had Ash fighting robot cyborgs, which I guess would have been a take on like T2, the, the technology at the time. But the most interesting one to me, you want to talk about the multiverse, is this description here that says, we wrote an Evil Dead 4 that followed both realities of the happy ending and the, the post-apocalyptic ending, the overseas edit. And he said, we were going to be following two ashes, one in that dystopic future in, in England, simultaneously cross-cutting to Bruce here in his S-smart happy present. And he goes, and we realize we have really lost our mind now. We must stop. But looking back, oh, that would have been incredible. That's the one. That's the, that's the way to go. That's the one because you can get to incorporate the two endings into it without maybe, you know, brilliant, I think. And, and you, we did the whole episode of flipping the script. This would have been, yet again, the franchise flipping the script in a very creative way. And I would have loved to have seen that. It would have been absolutely insane. But that's what I love about Sam Raimi movies is how insane they can get. And I, and I think that's really important, too, to kind of seg into, like, why this movie is totally the way it is. And it, it is Ivan, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. Ivan is one of the ones... I mean, just those ideas alone are so forward-thinking, so, you know, out there, so out of the box and left of the dial, which is really what, you know, Army of Darkness needed. It really comes down to the fact that, like, he brought a lot of the comedy, you know, to it. I have a couple of quotes, if you don't mind. Yeah, go ahead. I could pull from some of them. I have one from Sam who said, you know... Ivan has a good sense of humor, and he's got an interesting eye for characters that I really admire. He brought a lot of character to Darkman and the villains. Mostly, I think he brought a sense of humor 
Army of Darkness, and I appreciate it very much. As with Scott Spiegel, when Sam collaborates with Ivan, he does the typing. Sam won't let me sit on a certain side of him, said Ivan, but I won't reveal which side. They, they worked either at Sam's house in Los Angeles or in Ohio, where Ivan was working at the time. And this is all coming after Easy Wheels, which is where Ramey had collaborated with his brother on the script before this. And there was originally a script called Woman on Wheels. Mm. <laughs> but Ivan has a really interesting quote about like the, the mythology of like his, his writing and also just like kind of what Sam and him have been obsessed with, you know, because they grew up together. He said, Sam and I have, been working, uh, have, have worked together since he put me in his films and on flattering roles in high school. Put this dress on. You're going to hit with, get hit with a pie. I went the wayward route to medical school. <laughs> Sam encouraged dro- Rob to drop out of college and make films. I'm the one who went wrong. Why am I still working for a living? I even like the challenge of starting the third film with Ash. Wait, wait, wait. So he, he goes, so he basically talks about how, what brought him to this point with the Army of Darkness. He said, I thought that was such a unique place to be. It wasn't right to bring him straight back. He's talking about, uh, you know, being in medieval times. Sam, the restaurant. Yeah, he was in the medieval times. The restaurant. What if it was just in the restaurant that he had actually <laughs> landed into at the end of it? So he said, Sam and I have always been influenced by this concept that was in Ghostbusters, but I thought they didn't develop it, which was technology versus the supernatural. I wanted to take it seriously, and I thought, how cool! All those machines. We wanted to make some movies idolizing technology, s- saying it can defeat. The supernatural. It always seems to be the reverse with the evil galactic empires defeated by the spiritual side of the force or a wizard or something like that. So the reverse is an interesting devil's advocate, art, uh, you know, argument. And that's where you can kind of see where, you know, that does come about in Army of Darkness. I mean, this is definitely, I mean, we'll talk about it in the section with Ash, but like, you know, there's a lot of technical kind of postmodern advances here, or not even like like post-ancient advances that he brings to the table here. Um, it's almost like steampunk in a way in this movie. And I think you know, that, that certainly all comes from Ivan. So credit Ivan Ramey for the real big swerve here, I feel. But, you know. Yeah, those Ramey brothers really had it together, huh? Pretty cool deal. And we'll talk a little bit <laughs> yeah. more, a little bit more about Ed Ramey, who is, he appears several times in this movie, but not as big a role as Henry <laughs> in Evil Dead 2, obviously. You guys, you know it's been nicer lately, and in Wisconsin, you never quite know when winter is going to be in, but it's been nice for like four days in a row, and I'm like, if sunnier days are coming, it's time to fuel up, and so I'm going back to my factor meals that no prep, no mess. I want to hit my weight goals before it's time to hit that beach. You've got options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto. Factor has these fresh, never frozen meals, dietitian approved guys. And here's the big thing for me, keeping out of the kitchen as much as possible, two minutes and these meals are ready. So it doesn't matter how busy you are, you've always got time. So treat yourself. They have 35 different meals to pick from, 60 add-ons to choose every week. You're always going to have new stuff to try. Have it whenever you want. It's effortless, guys. So if you'd like to try it yourself, head to factormeals.com slash badmovies50 and use code badmovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code badmovies50 at factormeals.com slash badmovies50 to get 50% off of your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. We'll have to get to that section later on, but before we get to that section, I got one question to ask all of you. Why does she keep making those horrible noises? I don't want to die. You're not going to leave me here, are you? Are you ass? <laughs> All right, so this section we're going to be talking about the music, and that's it. There's no songs in this particular entry, so we're literally just going to be talking about the score of Army of Darkness, and what better way to lead off than by going down to Wolfman Mac 
Macrom Rap Macromonicon. Is that right? No, uh, nom, am I close? Nomicon. Nomicon. Mac, no, mo, nomicon. Go <laughs> thank, ahead. Thank you for butchering that. Uh, <laughs> so Joe LaDuca, who had done the previous uh, Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2, um, continued on with doing this as well. It's It was this... Um, he was still first in line, essentially, to do Army Darkness. I think that uh, because Raimi had worked with Danny Elfman on Darkman, which was more of a studio decision, apparently, but I think they got along really well, he came on to do the March of the Dead theme. Raimi had this to say about Duca. He said, during the long days spent creating the soundtrack, Joe and I shared the closest working relationship of any of our films. It is Joe's most detailed score, containing a great diversity in instrumentation and mood. He has not only captured the sound of the original Evil Dead films, but has also created a grand tapestry that tells the fantastical tale of the Battle of the Dead 700 years in the past. And I agree. You know, mm-hmm. I was going back and watching it again. I was really... I love that opening. I love the March of the Dead theme. I, You know, and I, I love... I do love Danny Elfman's theme and it does absolutely feel like a, a true, like almost Burton esque, you know, like the, 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 the nightmare before Christmas esque kind of like thing going on there. Yeah. Yeah. Specifically, but, you say, you say March of the dead Mac. So the only Elfman music in the movie is literally when they are approaching the castle and the skeletons are marching. That's, that's the March of the dead music that people. It's the March of the dead theme. Yeah. I, yeah. it, it I would say I think it's it might be reprised a couple of times in the in the film, but but most of it is Leduca's score, and and I got to say, and it also feels very much in line with it. Made me I went back and was thinking about Evil Dead Two, and that score is so good, mm-hmm. and it really is a clear continuation of that. And even all the incidental music is really memorable, I think. And then even into the end of the film, I, I just feel like. It really is his most, you know, detailed score. And I, I agree with Remy on that. And it's cool because right after Evil Dead 2, he Leduca went on to do The Carrier, Moontrap, which you mentioned earlier, which was Walter Koenig and, and Campbell is, was in that as well. Lunatics, A Love Story, and then came back to the Army of Darkness. And after that, he, yeah, a bunch he of Bruce did Campbell a, a lot of... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he was in a couple of those too. He stayed pretty close to Raimi and would continue on, obviously, to do Hercules and all that stuff. But yeah, I really, really think that this is a solid score, and I'm glad glad that we got it. And it's cool that you know Elfman came in and did did a little number in there. I think they were like, well, we, well, if we, because he was having a day, <laughs> you know, he was just doing all of it. Well, yeah, Rothman. We were talking about what he was doing leading up to that. He did. It was like Batman, Dick Tracy, and. What else came out? Oh, Darkman. Like those yeah. three scores alone in like a span of a year, you know? And they all sound in sync. And, and then he's also, you know, doing a lot of the Burton stuff out and adjacently mm-hmm. with that. And I mean, this is, I mean, hell of a run for Elfman. I mean, he doesn't really stop. I mean, he hasn't stopped me. Hell, he just fucking headlined, or he didn't headline, but he just played Coachella, <laughs> which is... And he just so played, a, and he played a bunch of music from his, from his movies, which I did not yeah. know he was going to do. I thought he was just going to do his solo or Oingo Bongo stuff, but... yeah. I love Leduca's score here, though, because I, I think yeah. what's the way that he plays it seriously against the comedy is just fucking awesome. Like, I, I think of all the romantic flourishes. I don't know. It hits you in a different way. Like, I, I know that you know, you're supposed to laugh at it and it's very tongue in cheek, but there are some moments where it does kind of feel like, yeah, we are watching an Arthurian tale. Like the, that little n- nod that plays when Ash rides away from the castle at the end. 
it's like really pretty. Like I'm like, was shocked mm-hmm. by it. Yeah. Every time I watch it, I'm always just kind of, I think that kind of plays into like the melancholic tone that I was talking about um, in the last episode. But yeah, I love it. I think, this yeah, is I think in a lot of ways, Vanderbilt, maybe you'll agree with me. I think because of the name recognition of, of Elfman then and now for that matter, I think if people just assume that he did the score for this movie. Sure. But I think about two pieces of music that I always love from this that by LaDuca are, is the training sequence. Mm. That music's terrific. And the hero, the, the finale music is just terrific. Justin, you read my mind. Hey, look at that. To, to your point, like to, when you're talking about does Army of Darkness without work without Evil Dead 2, neither does the Army of Darkness score. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. you see the progression of Leduca from this very simple synthesizer-based simple, and then you start to <laughs> hear a little bit of that Despite it, I mean, I don't know if Luduka knew that they were eventually going to go to the Middle Age. I guess maybe he did because he would have seen the ending. Like, you start to feel that a little bit in Evil Dead 2. And by part three, like, that's, or Army Darkness, it's a John Williams score. It's uh, yeah. It's got that hero theme. Like, when talking about that S-Mart ending, it works. I mean, obviously it works, but when that when that end credit title comes in mm, with yeah. that big sweeping theme, uh, that's an ending. Right there. That is so fucking cool. When I was 12 years old, I just thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And when the Death Coaster comes out of the, the, uh, the, the some part the, the of the castle, castle door, where they yeah. had the castle door, it just fits so well. But all the other little nuanced parts, like the, the where it gets a little spookier, where it gets, it's very romantic score. Yeah. Too. That's, that's it all works together. I, I bought this CD, you know, obviously when it came out. And listen to it incessantly. This and the Independence Day score by David Arnold are two Actually, of my <laughs> favorite scores of the 90s, I think. Yeah, listen to David Arnold's score for Goldeneye, one of the worst pieces of music ever composed. But I do love his music uh, for Independence Day. Matt, yeah, go ahead. The music for Independence Day is better than Independence Day. I, I would agree probably 100% on that, too. <laughs> Mac. Well, I was just going to say, so before we started the episode, I, I was just kind of looking at some random things. And I watched the trailer to Army of Darkness, mm. and it is just underscored by straight up just like rock music, like dang, 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 dang. and I gotta say, I was kind of like, you know, this actually kind of works. Like, maybe what if it had just been scored by like popular music of the time? Because to juxtapose the fact that they're in the middle Middle Ages, but it is Ash from now, I think it's a totally different movie. But that's also why I think it's so cool that we got Joe Laduca's score because. That was absolutely a time where I could could see them just going, you know, we're gonna just put in a bunch of popular or not so popular, you know, whatever they could get rights to, rock music, you know. Back because I was disappointed when the rock music from the commercials, which was basically a riff on Enter Sandman, Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) was not on the score because I was this is how obsessed I was about Army of Darkness. Like this is before the days of YouTube, I would sit and watch TV with a the VCR going, ready to tape. Yeah. The TV, the commercials, so that I could watch him, and I, I totally expected that rock music to be in the Army of Darkness score, and was a little bit disappointed when it wasn't. But but, and I was talking to Mike about this earlier. You know, uh, Mike mentioned that they do kind of lean into that though more in the series. Oh, know, totally. They, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, Raimi had talked about the reasoning for that was that, you know, it was supposed to be the show that, the you know, he's emotionally stunted. You know, he's always going to be living in the past, and that's why, you know, the music embellishes that. But, I mean, it, it's funny that the trailer for Army of Darkness has that imagery and tied to rock music, and it's, you know, that's just largely non-existent in the Evil Dead franchise. And then you get to the series, and it kind of leans back on that. And it made me wonder, you know, when we were discussing it earlier, I was like, 
well, would it have worked here? Like, would it have worked if we had, like, some rock tunes from there? Because, I mean, think about it in this era. It's early 90s, especially by the mid-90s. You were getting a shitload of genre movies where it was leaning into, the, you know, into that, that heavy metal aesthetic. I think of even, like, the Carpenter movies, you know, where think about, like— He's going electric guitar instead oh, of synth. all electric. And it, it's by this year, or around, at least the next year, especially with In the Mouth of Madness. But, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't think it works if you did that here in Army of Darkness. I mean, I guess— there's an alternate universe where we're talking about how awesome it is that ACDC did a song for this instead of uh, Last Action Hero or whatever it is. They're but, like, but, okay, you, do you want to do Big Guns for Last Action Hero or Big Guns? <laughs> I will say, though, listen, you have to admit that now, look, I love this music as, as well, and it's all hindsight, right? But if that scene of the, the, the souped-up Delta comes crashing through that door to ACDC's Big Guns, I mean... Um. It's pretty fucking awesome. Yeah, yeah. It still works. Still cool. works in a different way. Yeah. Vanderbilt, I need you to do a video edit of. I'm working. Of, I'm, I'm working on it. Man, ACDC's big guns <laughs> kicking in right when the door explodes but, open. Well, here's it's a hot take from Twitter. <laughs> here's 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 a hot take, and I don't think it's a hot take, but something no. I talk about a lot when it comes to scores and movies now. And I don't know if it's because I'm just being a cranky old man, but the. Hero theme to Army of Darkness is more memorable than any theme that we've gotten from a Marvel movie in the past. And fifteen years. You know what? I have no issue. And with why that. is it you, so hard? It's hundred percent. Yeah. Do you know why? what? Just is? rip off John Williams for the love of God. Just rip off John Williams. I, I watched. I visited my uh, friends and, and their kids, and, and we watched. And no regrets, by the way, because this is actually a pretty good trilogy of family films: the, the How to Train Your Dragon trilogy, which has. And I told my brothers, I understand why the score to that movie is so great, and it's better. I think. I, as a matter of, I think. Let me plug my Letterboxd account, but I think my Letterboxd review was literally, this score is better than all 25 Marvel movies. Like, I don't understand why it's so difficult to come up with a great score like that. Here's my thing. I'm going to posit a theory. I feel like the scores that we're thinking of, we're talking about the theme from Army of Darkness, the, you know, the hero theme, or Indiana Jones, or Star Wars, is perceived as cheesy or old-fashioned. And yeah, I guess. Despite so these movies trying to re- despite these movies trying to recapture that kind of nostalgia, they're afraid to do that because it, it, it I don't know, someone's going to make fun of it on Twitter or something for being old-fashioned or quote-unquote cheesy. And I think this shit just needs to fucking go out the goddamn window. I need to know I mean, these we, overtones. Let's go. We, Let's bring them we, back. T- we talked about it in past episodes and especially even with I think with like interviews with composers in the Losers Club and and that how I think of like Christopher Young interview that I have on there. We talk about uh, great lengths, but how yeah. like the the iconic the, the 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 theme is gone, and now it's more of just atmosphere. It's more like what yeah. can you do to prop it up? I think there's a good middle ground there. I actually think you know say what you will about the new Batman movie. I really do actually like the way that they incorporate like something in the way into like his actual theme and that yeah. there's there because it's in a theme. I mean, it's, it's still memorable compared to like what you were saying with the Marvel movies. Like, I mean, you, and, and there's no dum, excuse. Dum, like, you, have, dum, dum. you literally have Alan Silvestri who has one of the greatest themes of all time with back <laughs> to the future doing that score. And it's kind of like, eh, not great. But is that marching I, orders I, or I, is that per- composers losing their edge? Who knows? I don't, I don't know. know. I, I think the main Avengers score is memorable now because it's been used so many times yeah, in those films true. that you remember it now. But initially, I don't think it was as popular or memorable in that first Avengers film. So all that to say, <laughs> yeah, I agree with you, Vanderbilt. I agree with you guys. I think that these kinds of scores are lost on us now. What's funny, because John Williams, too, though, is the same thing where we, we were 
in the future. You never know. Talk about Crystal Skull. That score is unmemorable, and that's very much just more of a mood score, and it doesn't have very big pieces in it. Whereas you look at his score for Tintin, phenomenal. That's like the mm-hmm. Indiana Jones score we always wanted kind of thing. So it's it's very weird how even the greats, even the people that we're saying emulate, emulate, they're still they're now kind of kowtowing and doing the the kind of mood piece scores yeah. and not doing these memorable themes and like Rothman was saying. Do both because Army of Darkness isn't the scored Army of Darkness isn't just a collection of memorable themes. I keep going back to the hero theme, the Death Coaster theme because that's my favorite. That was my favorite when I was twelve. That's just the kind of stuff I like, but. There's all sorts of weird little touches that are more atmospheric when he goes to the graveyard or when mm-hmm. he's in the windmill that aren't baroque, I guess, in the yeah. sense. Jaunty, in a way. Yeah. Well, look, the music's incredible to this. I'm sorry we didn't get ACDC's big guns, but you know, we'll, we'll wait for the uh, Evil Dead Coda Army of Darkness cut from Sam Raimi years later. <laughs> that he will put out, get that permission from ACDC. Let's do it. Let's make it happen. But we've been talking about this guy a lot. I think it's time to, to go to that section that we've dedicated to him. And it's a section that we call Hail to the King, baby. Sure, I could have stayed in the past. Could have even been king. But in my own way, I am king. Section, of course, we're going to be talking about uh, Ash Williams, played by the great uh, Bruce Campbell. And there's a good interview that he gave to Hollywood Soapbox in 2021 in which he broke down the trajectory of Ash Williams, which either this episode or the last episode, look, folks, we all lose track at this point that Vanderbilt pointed out. He said, well, look, the first Evil Dead is pretty straight. It's kind of a melodrama. There's not a lot of cracking jokes. By the second Evil Dead, he's sort of like a veteran with a little more sardonic cracks here and there. By the time you get to Army of Darkness, he's sort of the ugly American. He's morphed into the full braggadocious guy. He's been through stuff. Get out of my way. And yeah, that checks out. But it's wild when you think about the way he describes it. You think you're talking about some 10-year journey with this character. But here's the bottom line. Evil Dead the movie starts with him in the backseat of his own car. (laughs) Three three nights later, King Arthur is deferring to him atop a castle as to when to fire the first shot against the army of the dead. <laughs> yeah. It's insane, but I, I love I'm, it. I love I'm glad it. you put that up because I, that, that's exactly what I said to Sammy. I said, I, I, no one ever talks about the actual <laughs> timeline funny. of events here. It's fucking crazy. It's insane. Well, you, you're, you're, you keep bringing up Evil Dead. As we know, that is a standalone film. Oh, and Ash right. died right. yes. at the end of the Evil Dead. <laughs> that's right. And that, and that is why there's two universes where the Delta is rotting out in the Evil Dead uh, remake. You don't upset no. anybody on Twitter. You're right. You're right. <laughs> but no, I, it's 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 the hero's journey. Like yeah. he becomes the ugly American. But I think what they forget to add is I think after he becomes the ugly American, he does realize that it is his job to be a hero. And I think there's a little bit more selflessness. There is in the, in the in last him. act when he comes back to fight. Yeah, yeah. And then in you know in the S part, you know, gets to do what he does. Yeah, and he's kind Be of gone king. back to being that loser Ash again, which is funny well, in a lot of ways. I, the haircut I, I, and everything. I love that. I love that. How it ends essentially ends with him working in housewares at S Mart. <laughs> like even though he's telling this story hero, to everybody in the break room. I know it's, it's, <laughs> it's nobody it's would believe perfect. it. 
I agree. I, I I love the whole thing and the absurd. And they just lean into the absurdity, right, Rothman? They they lean into it and they know what's going on, but it's oh yeah. I mean, I mean, you guys talked about how he was like the coolest in Evil Dead too. I don't really know if I agree with that. I think I get I get the sense that you know they are deferring to him in that that cabin. He's the maniac. He comes back. He has an edge there. I said it in the first episode when we talked about Evil Dead One. Like he's the Indiana Jones of horror. Like we don't have a horror hero like this. That's a spell, especially a male horror hero, where he literally is the Indiana Jones of horror. And this is his Temple of Doom. Like he is. He yeah, gets yeah. to. He gets to be the muscular guy. He gets to go out and you know he he's the hunk. I mean he's handsome. He's hilarious and he's handling it all in this movie. And I know that he's supposed to be the you know the dumb American and everything, but that's part of his smarm. And that's part of a kind of a B movie smarm. I mean like go yeah, back to all yeah. the movies of the forties and thirties. Like that's one thing they do divert away from in the, the Indiana Jones movies, but they kind of lean into it into Temple of Doom because he's like, he, I mean, just think about how Indy acts in Temple of Doom compared to the other movies. He's brash. He like takes control of the plane, crashes it. He he doesn't really know what he's doing half the time. And he just he grabs does make it. a lot of mistakes too. He makes yeah. so many yeah. mistakes and that's kind of why I love about it. Again. <laughs> but they never really, I mean, I guess they do kind of lean into it a little bit more in, in The Last Crusade, but like this is the B-movie hero. And Ash gets to totally play it in here. And he even gets a fucking Leia here. I mean, like, Embeth Davids is literally, it's like a Han and Leia situation. It's en- enemies to, fr- to lovers. Like, I fucking love that. So I, this is my, I, when I think of Ash, hey, like, how, this is what I think of, you know. How yeah. cool does he look in that fucking cape, too? It looks that great. Cape is, that's oh, that's no, fucking, that's cape, top yeah. 10 capes. That's top 10 capes right there. Well, which well, he said, very God, subdued. He, said, he said, thank God for that because he didn't know how to ride a horse. It was covering yeah. his ass, <laughs> jumping up and down like this. <laughs> but I like how, uh, quick, how quickly he adapts to living in the Middle Ages. Like, yeah, I'm going to wear a cape now. Like, well, he didn't let, need let to wear ask, that cape. Mac, let me ask you this question. I was watching it to, to again at the, before we recorded. And I don't know who else, for as many roles as Bruce Campbell almost got, but just didn't quite get. He was always the runner-up, I felt like, for about 15 years there in Hollywood. Just didn't quite happen, happen for him in that regard. I don't know who else, who was big at that point, who would have done this role and be able to alternate swiftly between the definitive badass hero to the guy who's like shaking his head trying to unstretch his head or was like doing Three Stooges bits with many ashes running around. Like who Gary. else could have done this? But one him. guy. Only oh, one I've Gary. got a. I have a few <laughs> few names. If you bear with me. Oh, please. I, I, yeah, please. Liam Neeson. No. Ah, can't see it. <laughs> can't, <laughs> can't see it. Liam Neeson. Kidding. No. I'm kidding. Michael Douglas. <laughs> nope. <laughs> These jokes are. I'm, I'm being serious. I'm, I'm looking I'm at the movies. Serious. I'm looking at the movies. The films that that were uh, around, around the no. time. Right? I, got, I got one name. One name. All right, what do you got? But you. What's your third one, Mac? Because I'm, I'm interested if you're going to have it. Maybe oh, I'll have uh, it here, K- too, Carrie Ells. Carrie Ells. No, no, no. He's um, your, your boy. Bill, Co- Bill Cosby. Bill, Bill Cosby. Yeah, go- after Ghost Dad, he goes and does Army of oh Darkness. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay, the he only was, person that could go in, in there... Max, hold on. In, in the Carrie yeah. Ells defense, though, he is kind of doing a lot of that in Prince Spread, though. He's a small yeah, he, pirate, and he's doing, like, the, the slack comedy. You know, he doesn't have the muscle, though. Like, uh, okay, need, that's true. Jim Mac, Mac, are you going to say it? Because I, it's, it's, I feel like we talked about him in the first episode. Or maybe I think you I know you guys definitely talked about him in Evil Dead too. Who about who could have possibly Kurt, stepped in? Kurt Russell. Kurt, oh, Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell. He's the only one. Yes. He's the only one I could think of that could be an alternate. Yeah. And it's and it makes sense that he was obsessed with this role when he talked to to Campbell on the set of Escape well, from LA. Yeah. That, if they decided, right. if they had decided, this isn't going to be tied to the Evil Dead movies, it's, but it's going to be a man out of time. So it's just his own film. I can see that Kurt Russell stepping in, maybe. 
Isn't that funny? I'm saying maybe Kurt Russell could fill <laughs> yeah. the shoes, Bruce, Campbell's yeah, the Bruce shoes. Campbell. But, but that's be, well, that's be, that speaks leagues to Bruce Campbell that he's so good in this. But I was going to say earlier though to to your you know why he, he I do think of this movie when I think of Ash because mm-hmm. I do feel like this is this is the full fruition of what they wanted Ash to be, and I think he's he gets to stretch all all of his everything that that he wants he, him to do the comedy, do the horror, the, all this stuff, but. The, the the whole cool aspect though I think is because in, in Evil Dead Two, you're he is always right. You're always like Ash knows he's cool. He's right. He does. There's some silly stuff that happens with him, but you're never like you're wrong. You're you're a doofus. You're doing things. There's a lot of that <laughs> in Ari Darkness where he's just you know taking advantage of the situation. He's fucking things up left and right. But I do agree with your. Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom to, likeness. It is yeah. very much like that. A little bit of everything. In that. Speaking of, we t- in talking about deleted scenes, I do, one thing I wish that wasn't a director's cut that I think would work in that final is the, uh, is him cowering, or Arthur thinking that he's cowering in fear when he's running to go grab yes. the Death Coaster. Yes. I agree. Yes. That, that's that's the big, then that moment back. pays off big time, I think. Like yeah. that's the moment where he really becomes a hero in this one. I mean, and, it's for and what a great sword fight! What a great sword fight! With well, the stunt work right? that he's doing—I mean, this is him for most of those. If you watch it, a lot of that stuff's uncut. It's absolutely Bruce Campbell doing a lot of that sword fighting, that choreography with the multiple horny extras coming at him. <laughs> yeah. One of my favorite moves is when he puts the sword into Evil Ash's shoulder and then flips over him mm-hmm. and turns around and whacks him again. That sword fight's great. That's like Errol Flynn, Flynn quality. As far yep, as I'm I, I agree. Another thing, it's it's very much like the Mad Max moment where it's mm-hmm. like when mm-hmm. when you he, he's gonna leave, he's he's branded a coward, and then he's like, No, we're gonna stay here and we're gonna fight who's with me, kind of thing. It's very road warrior. Well, I mean, no spoilers, but they definitely lean into the, the Mad Max aesthetic at, at a certain point in the Ash vs. Evil Dead show. They do, so, but they do it here too. I mean, uh, yeah. that whole the whole pit sequence. When I that when I mentioned the cool thing earlier, it's because you watch that pit sequence and he walks out there and he's commanding it, and they do the point of view shots and everything. That's that's the YouTube moment. Like when you think of like, oh, who's Ash? Go to that. Like that's mm-hmm. the fucking scene. It's fucking insane. Like it's such a good. Like who? Wh- there's no. There's not a star on the planet that would that, that wouldn't want to like just jump at you know the, the moment to have that scene. That scene is so fucking cool and. For me, it's like it encapsulates the entire series as a whole. Like you get the horror, you get the action, you get the 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 comedy, and the the, the tone is just all there. Like it's it's oh, it's such a good uh, moment. And Mike, to go back the, to your Indiana the, Jones the comparison, one, when he does yeah. t- pulls the belt off, and it's essentially yeah. his whip. Yep, it Not makes the, the sound of a whip crack. By the way, this is just a random note. This one of my favorite scenes in the movie that has had me rolling is when. Mr. Pitt is holding the. the <laughs> you mean the wise man? The gunpowder. The wise man's holding the gunpowder over the thing, and he's like, he's like, no, 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 and he like moves his hand over, but then just to drive oh, it home yes. after he's after he's kind of moved on, you see him also move the candle. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's the one, it's the one moment where Ash is smarter than anybody else in the movie. <laughs> I know, I know, it's so funny because it's like you think he's like, oh, okay, he's moved him over, but then it just lingers on him, and then he oh. also is like, I'm also gonna move the candle over here because he just doesn't. <laughs> I get a chuckle out of that every single time. Oh, so good. I also love when when he keeps like telling them about the three words and he's like, I got it. Like just the way that he reacts to that. It's just so like, it's so smug, but the way he sells it's so great. Cause then you, I mean, obviously it's a call, you know, foreshadows what's going to happen, but 
just that he has such little patience and like to everyone. I mean, even when, when, uh, Ambeth Davis comes in, you know, after he's in the bathtub and it's just like, Oh, why don't you shut the door? Did you grow up in a barn? And like under his breath, he's like, yeah, they probably did. I love these other yeah. primitives. Something I just thought about with that. The thing about the three words is though, it's even more impressive that that wasn't the original intent that that would be called back later that they wrote that into the script when they had to do the new ending. Because initially, mm. he, the only reason he goes to the future is because he takes one drop too many because yeah. he's That's distracted. Right, the, portion, the, portion. the words had nothing to do with it, but the fact that they worked that in and brought it back. That's clever. Uh, and we should writing. mention really that those words are a, a play on the day the earth stood still and what the uh, aliens robots say in that movie, by the way, that's classic that's, Grammy that's a play on, by the way. Yeah. Of you course, know, homage. Hey, no, my last favorite line, and this is no other place to put these. <laughs> yeah, talking this, about this is, we're talking about Bruce and Ash. Yeah. My last favorite lines when is a great cut too. is that it's a kudos, the editor. <laughs> it's a, after he shakes his face back together and it's that really, really jolting cut where it's just clearly normal again, no makeup. Yeah. And he goes, Whoa, wrong book. <laughs> yeah, you guys ever noticed that he kind of looks like Harrison Ford in when he when he's not quite as long, but yeah, the middle way, the yeah, middle way, way he kind of he kind of looks like Harrison Ford even. Well, look, these one-liners which we could, I mean, we I, th- I feel like doing this episode we we have to do some of the one-liners and pay homage. Give me some sugar baby. Classic. Yoshi bitch, let's go. Good, this is my boomstick. I'm the guy with the gun. Good, bad, and the guy with the gun up, yeah. Uh, I mean, or I'm not that good, depending on which cut of the film you watch. Oh, that's right. But I, get the and, fuck out of my face. I love that line. Yeah, get it's the so fuck out of my face. <laughs> the the tree one he, he calls Mr. Pitt's spinach chin at one point. Yes, spinach chin. He's just uh, a big total baby. Total Three Stooges reference. You know what else I thought about watching this as the years have gone on? It, this 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 iteration of Ash, though, in a lot of ways, it does call to mind Jack Burton. Speaking of Kurt Russell. Yeah, because he is granted he's the hero of the movie, but until the very, with the exception of the fight in the pit and the very very end, he's bumbling his way through things, hundred percent. You know, he, much he, like Jack Burton does in Big Trouble in Little China. I mean, he causes the, the cause of the to come problems. back. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, he's the cause the of the problems. I, I will say yeah. he's so influential because I, I mean, I, f- I think the first big realization I had when I went into the Evil Dead franchise was like. Oh, that's where Duke Nukem got all his one lines. Yeah. You know? And I think that's really important to kind of call out because, you know, I think a lot of people think of some of these lines and credit it to that fucking game. And that game absolutely pulled from Army of Darkness. Like, it's just impossible not to have that. I mean, in terms of, especially when it started talking, when the, the characters started actually getting all the one line, you know, the one liners here, they're, they're all ashes. Uh, and- well, just me, baby. Just me. When they ask if he's all men for the future, loudmouth brackets. Well, and this is another great case of Bruce having to play. Not only does he have to play uh, evil Ash in this movie, but he also has to play those little bastard mini Ashes who are running who are running around the windmill. And that whole sequence is great too. This once again goes back to the fact how we were talking about how the theatrical cut in a lot of ways works in ways that the director's cut doesn't, because you can have Bruce Campbell, you know, have the majority of Ash's lines be one-liners. Because the movie's so short, you don't get exhausted of the bits if this movie was 105 minutes long, or hell, even like the 93-minute director's cut is. So again, it, it speaks to the decision-making of Raimi, and ultimately, in some ways, the decision-making of the studio to say, 
hey, let's just stick to the Ash plot. Let's not worry about these other subplots. This is his movie. Let's let's rock and roll, you know, Mac. Well, you know, I was going to say to his credit and to the special effects team and everything and the makeup people, when I first watched the movie, I don't I think I I just missed yes, that it's I did supposed too. to be evil Ash when he's the general when yep. he comes back because when he comes back he looks so incredibly different than when we last saw him yeah, somehow he's rotted <laughs> he rotted real fast that lightning strike that lightning that strike. was like uh he rotted yeah. like a banana from aldi but but i i will say I, I didn't really pick up that it was him doing that because it really does not sound like bruce <laughs> he's really doing a voice and stuff and it's really fun to see him do that and and be that other character yeah when i just, first saw this mac I, I did movie, not you know I did not realize that that was the duplicate he had killed. I didn't. I just didn't yeah. pick up on it at all. It is, I agree. I thought, now, I thought it was like, a different actor. Like, hey, I didn't realize it was dummy. Like when the lightning strikes, you see all the pieces come up from the ground and then reassemble. <laughs> like it's like it's so blatantly. But I just was not. I don't know if I was not paying attention or just too young <laughs> or, to understand. Like oh, I, well, when he comes together and you just hear that woo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's That's so many issues of that. Well, and that's where I don't think anyone would really replace him. I don't even think Kurt Russell could do that. I don't think Kurt Russell could do the alternate evil guy here. Yeah. And, and I think that is really a big, important distinction for Campbell. I will. I had a question, though. Which Evil Ash do you prefer more, especially look-wise, the one in Evil Dead 2 or, or Army of Darkness? Well, it's more fun with this one, obviously, because Evil Dead 2 one is just basically a mindless deadite. So I guess in terms of the scares, it would be Evil Dead 2, but I love the idea of... Once again, this guy was in the backseat of a car, and now he's his <laughs> doppelganger demon is now leading this army of the dead against him. It just adds to the whole... 72 hours later. Well, the and, element of and it. Yeah. Rothman was just doing the, the, the you're, he, you're good ash. You're good bad ash. Bad yeah. ash, and the, the you good little tissues. And that, that. I remember when I was a kid, I just like I was really like put off by a lot of that stuff, because I think I was just like, I just want him to be... I just want to see a scary movie. I want to see Ash be cool and... I just didn't appreciate the humor, but now I, that's, those are the scenes I live for oh, when totally. I watch it. I, that, that cracks me up every time that happens. Well, it's like the X-Files thing you said, you know? It's like growing up, yeah. we wanted to stay yeah. the tone. And now, yeah, I mean, that's why I did the wine comparison before, because it's like, yeah, it, it, I was a little, it was a little put off by the humor of it, Mac, too, where I was just like, wait, what? Why is it too funny? Because I used to think that the Evil Dead 2 Ash, Maniac Ash, was like, kind of where I wanted it to be, you know, where it's like, no, this guy should be menacing. But now in hindsight, it's like this movie doesn't work if it's, just, if it's like the evil dead Two ash. It's just, well, it's so absurd from the beginning. Uh, you need yeah. to, c- to continue that tone of the absurdity and that you can't get too serious at that point. We all love Bruce Campbell. And I feel like we're going to be talking about him a little bit more as this episode goes on, but I think it's time to take a trip uh, to find us within the woods. Cheryl, what's the matter with you? Did something in the woods do this to you? No, it was the woods themselves. They're alive, Ashley. The trees. They're alive. Ash, why don't I take her in the bathroom? So she can- right, so we'll try to avoid you know the special effects talk until later on. But for this this section on the the the, the evil aspect of this movie, the, the, the villains, the, the the monsters that appear, it's hard not to once again bring up. Bruce Campbell, who does play the evil Ash. He's the, the lead baddie in this movie. It is Bruce Campbell. But in addition to him, you've got the little mini Ashes running around, and you've got uh, Sheila when she becomes a deadite. But more importantly, you've got those two demons in the pit. Uh, anybody have anything that they'd like to add about the, especially the uh, the puffier demon in the pit? Do you know who that is? Pit Beast is Billy Bryan? I believe you're right in the name, but do you know who, who else he's played? 
Hmm. Blanking. Thereabout, do you know? Uh, it's not Bill Mosley, because he plays the Deadite Captain. Right. Yeah, I'm saying that the actor who plays that monster in the pit also played... Bridget Fonda. Played, he played Bridget Fonda. No, he played Stay Puff Marshmallow Man in Ghostbusters. That's right! Damn it, shame on me. Oh, I, I just... Whoa. Damn it. How about that? That's a lot of fun, Very isn't cool. it? I think the big difference between this movie and the first two entries in terms of the Deadites is that the Deadites, to me, are, are an afterthought, because this is absolutely the, the Ash... The, uh, the the Ash Williams show, you know what I mean? Vanderbilt, how do you, what do you think about that? Say one more time. I was saying that the the Deadites to me <laughs> do not the Deadites do not mean as much to me in this movie as they do in those first two movies at all because to me they're an afterthought. To me, it's it's all about evil Ash, who is to me not really a Deadite. He's like a demon in some way because he's uh, talking too much. They they do seem like an afterthought, but there's one thing I was thinking about. There's two things that I love about the Evil Dead movies. One that they refer to the Female Deadites as witches. I just think that's cool. You don't hear the term witch used a lot. Well, now you do. Nowadays you do. But in, like, that kind of horror picture, you know? If it's a witch, it's usually a movie about a fucking witch, right? Yeah, sure. And two, how, like, as we've discussed, there's no rhyme or reason to any why any Deadite looks the way they do. They all look different. They just do whatever they want with it. And I wonder... If the Evil Dead movies were to come out today with the way uh, social media has rotted our brains into picking things apart, if you would read reviews that criticize these films because there's no lore, there's no there's no rules. Consistency or something. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that that was something we brought up, I think, in Evil Dead, the Evil Dead 2 episode where Raimi was basically like, these demons can do anything they want to do which kind of explained away a lot of, well, they weren't trying to explain away the situation with the first film. They just didn't have a good budget. The second one, that's why they come in so many different ways, whether it's the trees, whether it's the squirrel, whether it's, you know, the way they look always looks totally different. They can, you know, it's just kind of all over the place. It's a capture all, but I think it also lends itself to this movie because you have, you know, like the witch churning the stew in the room, which obviously was a bigger scene. And then you have the pit beast and then you have the winged demon, which like totally exaggerated and different. And then, yeah. So it, it's and then kind just of skeletons like, running around. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I agree. I agree with what you're saying in terms of like now. Yeah. There's no rules, but I think they're, I think that's the, the beauty of this movie, right? Is that there aren't any rules for this What's movie. A, you can just do whatever you want. You really anything can happen. Yeah, I mean, yeah. look, to, yeah. to quote Temple of Doom again, anything goes. Well, not, yeah, definitely not to quote the musical that that's from. Yeah, no, I always, I always say it's Willie Scott's song. It's Willie Scott's song. But I think that's what makes the franchise so great is they just always throw spaghetti at the wall and they see what sticks. And like, and that's with the lore. That's with the characters almost. Like, it's with certainly the narrative. I mean, and that's what's fun, been so fun about it. I mean, I think if you get too technical, you kill the movie. And that's what I get worried about with... You know, when they with the you know the the, the remake and the, the the new ones, it's like no, just have fun with it. Don't th- overthink this shit. Like you know, yeah, the, I agree. Well, the best thing they can do we... is just change genres again. But I know that uh-huh. they won't do that. No, yeah. Some something I wanted to bring up that we kind of didn't talk about is the opening. They have clearly they have the rights to Evil Dead Two because they show sequences from that as they lead into the Army of Darkness crawl in the beginning. But they still had to retell the Linda story with a different actress. I know. <laughs> like, they do the Bridget Fonda thing is so weird. But I love that. I kind of still love it because it's like 
every time a movie comes out, we can just kind of rewrite really quickly whatever happened in the past was to fit whatever we want to do now. But it's just really funny that they did that. I and I we'll don't talk about that. why she's in it a little in another section. I don't know where this would on. fit, but like, you know, because the original opening had, as we discussed, Ash in the post apocalyptic future kind of retelling the story. And there were the, um, I don't even know if, I don't think Bridget Fonda was actually in that. No, no maybe she was. I don't believe I, she was. I, but I think that was one of the reshoots later. The biggest crime is that they shot footage with Charles Napier as Bruce's boss at the S-Mart, and we have oh. never seen that footage. I, that's a crime. Now, Bruce Napier, Charles Napier, actually, excuse me. It's Charles Napier, it's it, right? Charles Napier. Yeah, Charles Napier, of course, the, uh, the villain at the end of First Blood Part Two, who <laughs> and, he's coming to get. I mean, that's... Uh, the, main, the main good old boy in yes. Blues Brothers as well. And uh, I, for, I neglect to remember from the series, did Chuck Connors play Bruce's dad? No, no, it was Lee Majors. Lee yeah. Majors, okay. Yeah. Good casting there, I think, as well. Yeah, though I do know why. So they actually didn't have the rights originally to Evil Dead 2, uh, the footage. They they eventually did smooth it out because, and we, uh, we'll probably talk about the great graphics with the, the car, um, because they did try to do the car thing again where it dropped and it didn't work. It almost killed people. <laughs> um, so they eventually went back and, all right, let's just use the old footage. So that's why they put it back in there. But... I do love the idea that like there's like what at this point this is the fourth Linda, fifth uh, Linda. If we're counting the posters, also is it the fourth? Oh yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> this would be the fourth Linda. Yeah. Oh, if so, you're counting the ba- the ballerina who plays the dancing dead Linda in the second one, it's like the fifth Linda. <laughs> Fucking ridiculous. And and all the shimps. This could be like the tenth Linda. Yeah, really. I was gonna say yeah, yeah. Uh, it's. It's pretty great stuff, but like I said, we'll talk a little bit more about Bridget Fonda's role like in this the, movie. It could be a Robert Altman movie. Or it really Lindas. was all the Lindas. Lindas, all the Lindas, uh, Doctor T and the Lindas. Am I right? That's <laughs> Richard Gear, first night, cut, by the way. Yeah, first night, Gere. the original caliber, Excalibur. First night, no. great, great Arthur movie. Camelot lives. That's the second time I've done that bit in this episode, in this series. So, all right, well, let's talk a little bit more about the rest of the actual living human beings in a section we call Knights and Deadites. One by one, we will take you. <sighs> All right, let's start off with who uh, is arguably the biggest star coming out of this movie. It was her film debut, in Beth Davids as Sheila. Later that year, she would appear in a minor film, not Steve Miner, minor film called Schindler's List. So she had quite the what 1993. Year. Holy shit. I think she does a good job. It's like the, she's basically playing your, your straight up damsel in distress, right? There's nothing she's, but she does it. She does it well. You know, she does it well. Yeah, because exactly. Rothman, you said you were you were even kind of affected by some of the romance in the movie, right? Yeah, I am. I mean, I I think she's great in this. And and what's crazy to think is, I guess they had to fight to have her in the movie because as Bruce said. She was a hard sell because she didn't have, and he did the Dino impersonation. Uh, she didn't have a, <laughs> the shapely body, uh, and and Bruce did the like mimicked, uh, you know, like doing like the big hourglass shape for the body. So when they did like a second screen test with her, I, I, I mean, they basically, I think he said that they had to like really kind of dress her up in in a way mm. to get the the, the you know. Tar- tartar up a little bit for Dino. Yeah, Probably. pretty much. So they put her into a corset and everything too. It's fucking crazy. But yeah, she's great in this. I think she's phenomenal. I never found her to be terribly memorable. And she's fine. She's not bad. She's good. Yeah. But 
she does go for broke and she does play evil Sheila in this, doesn't she? She does. Yeah. Like I had a moment where I had to look to see if they put somebody else in the makeup. When she does evil Sheila, she really does come alive. Oh yeah, yeah. I agree. Being, playing a dead woman. And I thought it was um, somebody else. I did not realize it was her. She does kind of do a 180 there. She does become this evil she person. looks different. That was fascinating. Her eyes um, get real wide. Uh, and that's, cool, that's the credit of the makeup, which we'll talk about later on, too. But uh, she's good. And I wonder how much of that ending of her coming back to life was also not in the original script. Giving her like the happy ending of her living after becoming right. possessed. Because that's once again, there are no rules, right? So you can do whatever you really want. I always thought yeah, she was I, underrated, um, too. Because like I feel like she didn't really get the career that, you know, we thought she might have in the, like the early 90s. You know, she goes in, you know, hell of a year doing Army Darkness and Schindler's. Matilda, she's great in. I think she's great in um, Fallen. I mean, she she does a you know a few. Hey, look, horror Twitter's there, favorite, Thirteen Ghosts. Yeah, that's true. She's in that also. But the irony being that she's part of the uh, the second Spider Man reboot, not the that's Raimi right. one. That's right. So. That's right. And she was also in Mad Men. Girl, with, she was in Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. A pretty good part in that too. I think she's done pretty good. She's not good for herself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's doing all right. She was cast as something else recently too. As I scroll through and try to figure out what the hell it was, but now I can't find it. So, oh, she was on Ray Donovan as well for a lot of that. So and she was she's old still last around. year. Yeah, she's still around. She's doing good. Good for her. And by the way, I always thought that she was British, but she was born in Indiana. I thought she was that? South American. Oh, she's South African. Maybe she her parents were South African, but South, she was born yes. in, in in India. So, Indiana yeah. or India? Oh. They no, she moved, didn't go to. They moved. Hold on. They moved back to South Africa when Davis was nine years old. Mm, okay, that makes she sense. She grew up in New Jersey and in Indiana. So there you go. To, her father studied chemical engineering at Purdue. So in case you were wondering, home of the Boilermakers. I don't know how I always remember that. Maybe because Drew Brees mm. went there. God bless him. Mac. That was awfully quiet during that in Beth Davids uh, section. But I guess we'll move on to our next character. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little inside baseball for everybody. Uh, let's talk about. We talked about him earlier, folks. The great wise man, a.k.a. Mr. Pitt from Seinfeld, played by Ian Abercrombie. Hey, look, this guy's been a great character actor for years, and what better person to play the unofficial Merlin in 1993? Good job. Let me mention some stuff. He, he is an uncredited role in a very cool psycho riff from 1973 called Wicked Wicked that is essentially the whole movie is shot like a De Palma picture with two cameras oh, going wow. on at the same time. I think it's out of print, hard to find. I believe it's on the Vanderplex, which has been down, but I'm working on getting it up and running. He's in the Happy Hooker Goes Hot to Hollywood. That's not the first time we've talked about that movie on this no. podcast. And he has a bit part in Steve Miner's Warlock. Warlock. Yep. Uh, he is in the Best Exorcist sequel, which of course is Repossessed. And the Best Puppet Master movie, which is Puppet Master 3. Toulon's Revenge. Funny enough, not playing Toulon. No, I believe he's is he yeah. playing a Nazi uh, officer in that particular. He's entry? like a, he's a scientist in that one. That's right. He's he's always the good elder. I'm sorry, but God bless him. All I can think of is him throwing his socks at Elaine. Oh, I always yeah. <laughs> I always think of him looking at the uh, the magic eye poster. Oh God! And then coming out with his pants off or whatever, and or having the accidental Hitler mustache. We must go higher <laughs> and giving the hell. I mean, what a great show Seinfeld was. Am I right, folks? Yeah, it's yeah. a it's a pretty funny show, and I um I enjoy it. <laughs> This day. Can that be the poll quote for the episode? Seinfeld in, in brackets. Seinfeld is a pretty good, funny TV show. It's I still a pretty good, funny TV show. <laughs> you you guys saw day. that meme that I found, right? The Seinfeld diet. Oh, yeah, it's great. So, so the great. Oh, cereal that and was, pussy. 
That's oh pretty accurate for the show, though. That's the mission <laughs> statement of the show, apparently. Yeah. Uh, any anything else to add about our, our boy Mr. Abercrombie Mac? Yeah. Well, just that he was uh, the butler in the Lost World Jurassic Park. Oh, okay, that's right. This guy's been acting. <laughs> God bless him. That was that pre. Was that that pre? Or no, it's during his run on Seinfeld, I guess. That was, mm-hmm. it was the height of his powers uh, on Seinfeld. Yeah, he, he was, also voices the uh, Chancellor Palpatine in the Clone Wars. Uh, wow, somebody involved in a Star Wars project in this. I can't believe it. Can you believe it? He was, he was pretty heavily involved in the Batman stuff too. I mean he he was the he was Alfred Pennyworth in the Birds of Prey show, which lasted a season. <laughs> he also came back to 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 voice uh, Ewan. In uh, the Batman in 2006, so uh, you know I was being confused with the Batman 2022, directed by Matt yeah. Reeves yeah. and written by Matt Reeves. Great job, Mr. Abercrombie. Thank you so much for your work, and thank you for contributing to that book I read on the Sam Raimi movies. It was an invaluable resource for this episode. Uh, Got to talk about my boy Marcus Gilbert, of course, who plays Arthur in this movie. A fun fact: he played uh, in, in the Doctor Who serial Battlefield. Basically playing King Arthur, uh, but definitely has Excalibur in it. So this is a bit of a return, a return for him to the Arthurian legend. I think he does a, a pretty a good job to here. Cam- a return to Camelot. A return to Camelot, as it were. I think he does a very fine job here as the straight man throughout this entire movie. He doesn't really have any moments of of, of brevity or levity, right? Am I right about that, no, uh, he's, Mike? He's got good. Gra- he's got. He brings some gravitas to it. He brings some. Yeah. British style to the whole. This guy has definitely been playing Shakespeare shows his entire life leading up to this moment. You know, they they cast him for a reason. Well, you know, he's born in England, so it's kind of a the lot. He was not born in Indiana. He was no, he was, <laughs> so he was born in England. Yeah, he was I know, Bristol, so he was England. definitely yeah. not. He not uh, grew up in New Jersey. He's part of my. He's another Rambo veteran here that we get to talk about. Rambo three, right? You know, yeah, that's right. Rambo he's three. Blonde. Love, I think he's one of the helicopter three. pilots in that movie. No beard. Musk, Musk. Well, I like how Mac. I'm imagining Mac remembering the name and not looking it up. <laughs> like, of course he played Tomas from Rambo Three. <laughs> directed. You know what? Fine. What's fine though? That film. You know who that directed film? Vanderbilt. Who directed uh, Rambo Three? Is it Louis Teague? No, that'd been pretty funny if Louis Teague directed it. But no, <laughs> you mentioned him earlier. I, I'm blanking. I do know that. I do want to mention that that film was dedicated to the brave Mujahideen fighters of Afghanistan. Yes, and that was swiftly adjusted in, in future DVD releases, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> swiftly changed. No um, controversy I, there. I thought it was Russell Mulcahy. Oh, it's Peter McDonald. No, no, I put, no, it was Russell Mulcahy, but he was fired. And he, of course, did The Shadow, which we talked about. Oh. In the last episode. So it, it is all connected. It is all connected. Hmm. Okay. Good job, sir. Wow, I didn't know this. This is interesting. Rambo 3 was originally supposed to be a William Freakin movie. <laughs> That I'm weird. not joking. That's it's. I'm just looking at it right now. It's it's random. Just but, that we're yeah. like, de, just that we're like, devolt, like getting into Rambo three now. And not, totally Although you know what? To it. be fair, when you think about the movie, The Hunted is very much a Rambo movie. Oh, totally. So totally. That, that kind of checks out in many ways. Well, let's we talk about Richard Krenner. <laughs> oh God, Richard Krenner is basically the Tommy Lee Jones role. Oh, I mean, oh, vice versa. Yeah. Tommy Lee Jones role in The Hunted is the Richard Krenner role. And yeah. Benicio del Toro's is the John Rambo uh, character. Not bad, you know. Good foot race in that movie, The Hunted. What can I tell you? Freaking does good uh, races, whether it's by foot or by car. He's he's a good guy at that. <laughs> Let's kind of run through these last few people. I just want to give some notes here. Duke Henry the Red, played by Richard Grove. Uh, we talked about him earlier. He played Colin 
in Point Break. Hmm. Remember him in that? It looks a little different. Uh, he was on that show Nasty Boys. Remember Nasty Boys about the undercover, like SWAT team style uh, cop show uh, set in Vegas, it ran for like a season or two in the 90s. Wasn't that like CSI Vegas or something like that? That was something no, else? No, no. God bless <laughs> it. Hey, well, right. I, I've never seen the show, but I like my boys nasty. So what can I say? Um, hey, hey, oh, like he was, he was, yeah, Jan, Jackson over here. Yeah, it's true. Uh, so I, I actually found out that Richard Grove uh, was friends with Marcus Gilbert. So then they were mean friends today. So that's, oh, that's nice. sweet. You know? That's nice to know. 20 Irony. years later, 30 years yeah. later. Okay. So this is a very funny thing I found. It sounds morbid, but it is kind of funny. Um, the blacksmith who appears throughout the bald guy with the, the mustache it's played by Timothy Patrick Quill, who's in nearly who was in nearly every Sam Raimi and Scott Spiegel movie, including three different roles, um, uh, much like Campbell in the and Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy. He he was even in Raimi's It's Murder short really? film. Really? Wow! Yeah. But listen to this terrific short uh, excerpt that his from his obituary when he passed away last year, which oh, is sad. But this is very tongue-in-cheek, very funny. It says. Tim's show was suddenly canceled on April 14th, 2021, after a very successful 63-year run. His name is now included in the Necronomicon Ex Mortis. I thought that is really great. That's a great uh, obit right there. I thought that was pretty great. If I can say great one more time, I will. It was great. Uh, <laughs> there's a really bit part Goldtooth in the movie who kind of recurs. I think he's one of the... Um, All right! <laughs> yeah, that guy. He is... Lester Billings and the Boogeyman short film by yes. uh, King's Dominion. The, King, the King's Dominion again. Yeah, that short film. How about that? Okay, so here's a story about Bridget Fonda being Linda. She was a big Evil Dead 2 fan, and she auditioned for Darkman. Presumably the Francis McDormand role. The Francis yeah. McDormand guy, which makes sense overall. I think that, that she works really good off of Liam Neeson anyway. Like, like I'm defending casting Francis McDormand in the movie. <laughs> like she sucks, but it's like, yeah, at the time it was a good idea. No, she's one of the best living actors, period. Who else worked on this particular movie and also worked on Darkman, whom she would later marry and start a family with? Uh, what's this? What's this? Jack Skellington. That's correct. Jack Skellington oh. from Nightmare Before Christmas. No, Danny Elfman. So there you go. That's a little, that's how they, I'm assuming they met around this time. If not on Darkman, then some, something around here. But this is like probably the best stretch in Bridget Fonda's career in a way, almost like, I mean, in terms of her, like getting a notoriety, I mean, like she's in doc Hollywood. I mean, this is when this is like her babe stretch where she's like the babe in doc Hollywood. She's, you know, the leading babe in single white female. She's the cute, uh, the, the sort of manic pixie dream girl in singles. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that summer she gets to be in po uh, point of no return where she kicks fucking ass. Awesome. Like, Which is the remake of La Femme Nikita. Yes. Yes, and then it's the following year she does It Could Happen to You with, like, you know, and then there she goes. She's off, she's off her, to the races. But, like, well, City Hall, Jackie too, Brown, Simple that. Plan. Oh, City Hall, God. Yeah, you get her in Raimi's Simple Plan. You get her in this month's Lake Placid episode, too. That's yeah, right. The rental. She's, she's back. Yeah. And you missed something else. You know what she was, she was in 1990 was she was in The Godfather Part 3. And That's she right. was, like, That's doing these right. high-profile roles at the time. So. Well, being, yeah, the, she retired in being, the daughter, being the daughter of Hollywood royalty, or being rather Hollywood royalty herself. Helps. That's true. Helps, yeah. I mean, she was an easy writer. writer. Yes, she was an easy writer. God. Was she an easy writer? Was like, at the baby or something like that? Yeah, something like that. Something like that, yeah. yeah. It makes sense. Credited, uncredited as the child in commune. Oh, of course. Commune. No idea. But yeah, she retired yeah. 
in 2003. I think her last movie I saw in theaters was uh, Kiss. I think her Kiss of the Dragon was her last movie, wasn't it? Yeah. Could be. Um, no. Well. With Jet Li? She was in a film called The Whole Shebang. The fuck is that? Val <laughs> <laughs> Bazzini, uh, uh, Stanley Tucci. It's interesting because. What? The whole yeah, shebang. Movie, so, Mac, that movie Vanderbilt came out in August 20. Vanderbilt's dying over here. That movie came out in August 2001. Do you think that it could, it's possible that uh, Bridget Fonda, you know, 9-11 happened? She was like, I'm done. I don't want to do uh, I don't want to do Well, my- here's my question for you. That movie, <laughs> hold on, everybody. Hold on, hold on, hold on. That movie Turning Red not only ignored Stop. 9-11, but the fact that it ignored Stop. Bridget Fonda leaving Hollywood is absolutely un- incomprehensible. I it mean, could I be actually- something, you know. She saw the, you know, maybe it was like after the second plane. She was like, all right, I got to. Oh, gotta my go. God. Right, this going. is more of a. a Look at that! Look up that wacko talking about t- turning red. There it is. There's the old. Some of the greatest, no, she, some of the best you know memes I, of the year. Cleanse the palace. I'm sad. I'm sad to uh, to you know throw you guys under the bus there, but she did return to the small screen. Yeah, the Chris Isaac show in 2002. So that I don't. Was, I do not think it was the events. The Chris Isaac that, show uh, was so funny. Yeah, the Chris and Isaac I, show was ahead of its time. I wish they would uh, figure out the music rights for that one and put that one out. Hmm. Okay, here's a couple of little bits here, though. How about this? You mentioned earlier, one of the Deadite captains is played by... Bill Mosley. The great Bill Mosley. Now and then Dead Knight 3, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, countless other horror Rob pictures. Zombie, fan favorite. Yeah. Many Rob Zombie movies, of course. Coolest guy. Very cool. Like, awesome guy, Rod. yeah. He seems great like a guy. great guy. Yeah. You know who plays the Possessed Witch? I do. Go ahead. It's Patricia, Ta- Patricia Tallman. Yes, and who is famous for? Uh, well, she's let's give it up for stunt people, but I don't know yes. what she's particularly famous for. Well, she's a very she did a lot of stunt work and a lot of especially a lot of star work, star work, Star Trek uh, Enterprises, not Jurassic. the Enterprise, but in specifically Park, Deep Space right? Nine. What's that? She does work in Jurassic Park. She yeah, does, she's but, Laura Dern stumpable. But most importantly, oh, I thought she was the Velociraptor. <laughs> no, hold, hold on. Most importantly, well, she is Barbara in Night of Living Dead yeah. remake. That's right, Night of Living Dead. Yeah. And she's also in the t- absolutely amazing George Romero movie Night Riders. She's one of the love interests, I think, of the second. Who's she the love interest for? The second lead of that movie, I can't remember his name. Julie. She's got longer red hair, but she looks she looks terrific. She's yeah, she's good. She's a possessed witch. She does all her stunt work, so why not just have her in there? Night Riders is so good. I love Night Riders. Such I could talk about movie. that movie. That's a movie you can really get into in terms of discussion. If somebody wants to pay us fifty bucks, we'll be happy. Fifty to do bucks, it. guys. So, sitting there for you, Night Riders. Yeah, she was a Romero girl. I mean, she's Monkey Shines. She was a yeah. party guest. She was in the Tales of the Dark Side. I mean, that there's definitely in that 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 crew for sure. For sure. And speaking of crews, not Ted Cruz, but Ted Raimi. Uh, that was an accidental transition, but amazing, God, it really worked well. Amazing, wow, yeah. incredible. Um, he plays four roles in this. Now, of course, Ted Raimi, brother to Sam and Ivan Raimi, famously played Possessed Henrietta in Evil Dead 2. Gives an incredible performance there. In this, he does several of the skeleton voices. So anytime you laugh at a skeleton line, the chances are <laughs> it's a Ted Raimi's delivery. You're mine, sweetie. <laughs> Where are you going? Just so stupid. And why are they talking like that if they're from anyway? That's a whole other story. <laughs> he also plays one of the uh, one of the cowardly warriors who runs away. He plays We're one safe of the, in the mountains. Yeah, he plays one of the supportive village, villagers. 
You can count on my steel. Yes. <laughs> but, of course, he plays the bemused Anthony who's having to sit there and listen to Ash's story. And that's smart at the very end of the movie. He's like, did you say the words right this time? Love Ted Raimi and everything he's in. And he's also very funny here. This is the is the true find for yours truly, though. You recognize who the S-smart store girl is at the end who Ash has the big kiss with at the very yes. end. Who is it, Mike Rothman? She's in uh, Adam Sandler's greatest movie of all time, The Wedding Singer, plays Linda. Uh, she's also a veteran from Seinfeld. She's been in, oh my God, a ton of different stuff. Oh, but, uh, but Mike, you're burying the lead. Which one? Of course, she was in the Canadian TV movies starring Charles Bronson. I happened to have watched a couple months ago because of Rachel Reeves' So Bad It's Good recommendation, Family of Cops Part one and two. Oh my god! <laughs> Although she was not in the third, she not she opted not to come back for the third one, which I believe is Charles Bronson's final film. But uh, yeah, mid tier movies, if there ever were some, the Family of yeah. Cops movies. But I'm not sure how they play today. Angela for, for, Featherstone, yeah, Stone Angela Featherstone. Cold Fox of the movie. I would agree. That big she comes hair, at the end and that, she steals it. That short denim skirt, my goodness, marron, as some people might say in other people in other cultures. She talked about that on the the doc that like, I mean, at the time, like, I guess she was really struggling. I mean, she only had a few TV credits to this, but she joked saying like, oh, is there food on the set? I could have, is it was there like something I could eat? You know, Christmas too. They were shooting like Christmas week to get this done. Yeah. If, it would be like a couple months later, which is kind she of was, wild. To think about. I think she quipped that she was the only actress still in LA. Yeah. <laughs> Makes sense. I mean, she's, I mean, it's a small little role, but she talks about how, it was actually kind of sad. She talks about how, like, yeah, well, no one's really, like, tweeting at me about, you know, my role in The Wedding Singer because she's, like, a monster in that movie. But they do talk – but she gets texts and tweets for this all the time. Um, wow. See, I didn't even pick up that that was her until this most recent rewatch, I think. I didn't even uh, – maybe it was the 80s haircut that she had in Wedding Singer that threw me off, I guess. But uh, there you go. Angela Featherstone, we salute you. All right. Any, anybody else – did I miss anybody else in this cast? I think it's – we're about ready to move on here. I'm going to do it right now because I've got to tell you, life is hard and dangerous. And sometimes you just got to chop off somebody's head to survive. We are eating a giant shit sandwich right now. Are you good down here for a minute while I try and unfuck the situation? I got it. Go. All right, so this is Best Kill. This is a kind of unique category for this franchise because I feel like those other movies have such definitive kill moments. But in this one... What what do we have here? What's the we have best to run off a kill? list? I like when the skeleton gets crushed by the the bag of rocks ah, as Ash. It just, as yeah, Ash swings those skeletons up are shaking the, their heads around. It's the uh, funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. That's a good one. That's a good one. All right, uh, we're Rafa, What do you think? Best it's kill. The pit. It's the pit. The, uh, pit? the whole sequence. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Not Mister Pit. Not Mister Pit, but <laughs> the pit. Yeah. Which okay. is not the pits of the movie. No, absolutely not. By no means. Mac, what about you? No, I was just gonna say I love when he when he fires off the shotgun over his shoulder and he does it like, <laughs> yeah, that's a good one too. <laughs> so freaking funny. I think for me though, it's the reshot ending, the S smart ending. Yeah, it's a definite. That, that whole sequence oh, is pretty yeah. good, and yeah. just blowing that witch away at the end is like, like, uh, that's the just one. Seeing Bruce Campbell look like Chuck Connors in a Rifleman, like yep. pop, 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 pop. And by the way, that would have worked so well if Chuck Connors was his boss. In that sequence, instead I, of I'm Charles surprised Napier. Chuck Connors hasn't been involved in the Evil Dead movies at this <laughs> point. Somebody, you know, let's do a, let's do a morbid over under. Did Chuck Connors die? I'm gonna say he died before 2010. 
Between 2003 and 2010, what do you think? Yeah, uh, Vanderbilt he died or much earlier than that. Well, Chuck, Chuck Connors, Connors? No, because Chuck Connors is in Taurus Trap. Yeah, but that was like early 80s. That's 79. Well, he passed in 92. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> so that's wow, why so he's he, not in this. That's, that's why, why he's not, not in Evil Dead 2. He just, he didn't even get to see. Uh, he didn't Army get to see the movie. He had no idea it was coming yeah. out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was just, uh, uh, you know, yeah. Justin, to that point, when the, the Deadite bounces off the trampoline. I mean, yeah. come on. That's, it's like a John Woo movie in three minutes. Well, yeah, it, it, coincidentally enough, like I said, Chuck Pfeffer wrote or worked on Hard Target, which was a John Woo movie. So I'm not sure. I'm sure some of that would snuck its way into this movie. That's um, Steven Seagal in the Hard Target? No, that's... That's Hard that's, Kill. Hard Target is... Van Damme. Van Damme. Oh, yeah. Not a big Van Damme fan. Hey, you know who else is in the S part we should mention real quickly? William Lustig is there. Oh, really? I was looking. The, he's one of the people in the background picking yeah. that stuff in the in the aisle. Oh, yeah, that's, that's cool. right. That's cool. That's right. Wow, what a bunch of great kills in this movie. Do you think they just had like great food on Ramy sets or like great drinks? Like, why was everyone? I mean, I guess they all just like hanging out together. But like, I feel well, like I everyone think, was always hey, stopping by. Oh, hey, I'll pop a, in. This is a Universal movie at this point. There, I'm sure they had an incredible spread. They probably had like like things from the '90s, like Blimpies. You know, they probably like, like Tostino's um, pizza rolls and stuff like that. You know, or like you know, like the Arch rolls. Deluxe. This is too. This is before oh, the Arch the, Deluxe. No, this I think, is pre. I, that's speaking of like a lifetime. This predates the Arch Deluxe. That's oh my god! To me. So you they probably they had, had like, shark bites in the dessert section. They probably did have shark bites, and they probably had like um, you know, they probably brought in McDonald's. They had like Dream Team uh, cups and stuff at the time. You know, it's like ninety two. Like, yeah, ninety two. You think they candy cigarettes? <laughs> Big league chew, you know, with the just old. A, just what if you like had like your salad plate and, a, and like a small plate of like Ugh. 20 candy cigarettes? <laughs> Disgusting. <laughs> Trying to quit myself, and everyone's making that dumb joke over and over again. Everybody, it's like they, they, they run to each other, and they say at the same time, like, yeah, trying uh-huh. to quit. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I don't worry, I've downgraded to unfiltered, I've upgraded to unfiltered <laughs> candy cigarettes, it's just sugar. Max rolling uh, his fingers to move on. That's not right, that's yeah. not what we're doing here, folks. <laughs> uh, but no, all, all joking aside, you know, I've joked about this many times, but we we've had this category on our on our show and we keep we keep using it over and over again, but we finally and we even did it for the first two entries regarding the special effects. I'm not even gonna say what it is because it's so stupid, but we did actually have something that we had to replace it with. So we do now have a new title that has more to do with specifically Army of Darkness. And that title is Great Graphics. Ah! What do you know? I beat my high score. How <laughs> <laughs> uh, was there wasn't an Army of Darkness Nintendo game? Right? Because it made twenty. But it didn't matter. Those games office. would be out before, and there was a Darkman game. But then I know, there was a Dark Man game. It's weird. I don't. They were pumping their money into Dark Man. I think you know it, what's funny. I think I remember playing the Dark Man game. Actually, it's good. It was, it was fun. My we, should game put, days. we should put the, you know, what, what is it when they when they do the whole run through of the game on YouTube? We should put. We should start posting the Dark Man run through of the game. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure check it out there. when we're done to, to to deal with some nostalgia. Okay, now this section we're going to be talking about this for a little while because this was a a real. Uh, community affair when it comes to the special effects and makeup of this movie, but so much of this movie is influenced by specific 
uh, special effects artist, a very famous one, uh, you might say. Wow, what a hot take to say this person's famous. <laughs> but Vanderbilt, why don't you discuss this person in question? So you can't discuss an army of skeletons without talking about Ray Harryhausen. That's right. A pioneer of stop-motion animation, Harryhausen got his start on the Academy Award-winning Mighty Joe Young in 1949 under his mentor, Willis H. O'Brien. Not to be confused with 1997's Mighty Joe Young starring Bill Paxton and a young Charlize Theron. Different movies. Uh, he was the, but Ray Harryhausen was the boss, was the boss man on the beast from 20,000 Fathoms, but it was Jason and the Argonauts that's considered to be his masterwork and most influential yeah. when it features Todd Armstrong, Andrew Fouds, and Ferdinando Poggi doing battle with an army of seven skeletons and featuring a Wilhelm screen. Harry Ozen built off the impressive one-on-one skeleton sword fight from his seventh voyage to Sinbad, uh, that, and that one took over four months to complete. So I can only imagine how long the one in uh, uh, Jason the Argonauts took. But Jeez, especially that era, you know. It's not a direct line from Harry Ozen to Raimi, though. Mm-hmm. We've got to stop off at 1970s Equinox. Equinox was distributed by Jack H. Harris, who produced The Blob, co-directed and featured special effects work from Dennis Murin, Aaron was one of the main men at ILM in 76, worked on Star, Star Wars, Wars yep. Close Encounters, all the best Lucas and Spielberg joints. And if you watch Equinox, there's a lot of story similarities between the original Evil Dead and Equinox, and even a lot of shots that Raimi lifted from mm. that one. So Equinox, uh, we didn't discuss it on the previous episodes, but it goes Harryhausen, Equinox, Dennis Murin. Then we come to what was going on in Army of Darkness, which was... We had Essentially, three major special effects houses working on this, right? We did, and I mean, we'll talk a little bit about. Well, let's, you know, we'll talk about a little bit now. I mean, Roth, and you, we talked a little bit before the episode off mic about how this budget for this movie was split up between basically uh, K and B, which which Greg Nicotero has been heavily involved in for decades now, and we, who we've discussed in the past, and also Alterian Inc. Uh, but you want to talk a little bit about that, Rothman? What, the Tony Gardner's company? or yeah, the Tony Gardner company, another one, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was just, I mean, the, the two of them were kind of taking control over, you know, all the effects that were going down um, at the time. And it's pretty, it's pretty wild to have, I mean, it makes sense when you consider all the effects that are on here. But what's astounding is that, like, you had these two major effects companies, and they're essentially being paid, like, nothing. There's a, a piece that was in one of the books I was reading about how, I guess when they broke it down, they're only being paid like $800 a week. Oof. Working on a universal movie. Uh-huh. No breaks. They work. No breaks whatsoever. I mean, no honestly. No days off on this movie. There was zero. And on a, they, would, they would finish it a whole day. And then they would look over and they'd see like, you know, some of the teams setting up for the night. And they'd be like, wait, we're continuing into the night? Like, are you kidding me? And honestly, when they tried to approach Tapper about, you know, the pay... Um, he was like, "Oh no, no, let, let, let's let, let's connect about this a little bit later." And then, and then <laughs> he went to tapper. go. He went to go talk to him. Uh, I think it was the guy from Tony Gardner's company. Uh, they went to go find him. He's like, well, "Where's Rob?" And he's like, "Oh, uh, he's over there." And then he like looked over and like he, Rob was in his car already driving off. And <laughs> they just had an episode on Atlanta season three about this very oh, thing really? about this person avoiding having to pay. That's, this is the exact same. Thing. This is pretty wild. Uh, that's so funny. But that's yeah, why he's I mean, such a good producer. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, though. he really. I mean, when you think about it, it's you're not wrong in Abby. that way. I mean, it's you know, in, in, in a scumbag. 
Yeah, so the one of the big things that they did in this was uh, the intro vision, which we talked about before, which was it was like the front screen projection of like previously photographed miniatures into like scotch light coated screens that would bounce back virtually all of the light they received. And it allowed it so that you could, you know, see what was happening, you know, that moment as opposed to like, uh, or like the next day later. at least, at least the next day. Yeah. It's interesting looking at IntroVision because I think IntroVision just kind of like petered out when green screen became so prevalent because this yeah. is like pre-green screen, green screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this, I mean, this is a blue screen era. You yeah. really do. I mean, even when and I and I kind of wanted to float that out there is like I know that they were trying to go for the old school vintage look because you watch it on the Blu-ray now, and I imagine even in like the old theatrical cuts, like you can pretty much see that it is like the the, the screens being used, and that's part yeah. of the charm of it, though, right? Exactly. But, I, it's but the, the shots are usually so quick, like you only notice them because we research this movie, and me, I've probably seen this movie. 50 times in my yeah. life so you notice where the those shots are but I, it was very innovative for the time i thought yeah i mean it's, yeah. it's pretty cool like how how much they're able to stretch it i mean down to like even when I, the whole windmill sequence is where i feel like you see so many of the effects coming to life because you know, especially with the miniature work yeah that windmill doesn't exist yeah it was on a set that's wild it's fucking wild it, it, it's just it's just so interesting and it, and it adds such a look to it where I think there was a quote that like Tappert or maybe it was Campbell that said it was like, you know, after doing Darkman, it was kind of fun going back to this because although we had more budget than we ever had um, for an Evil Dead movie, it did feel like we were reeling back to like this sort of indie cinema. And you could kind of get that with like some of these scenes where it's like, it does feel like it's still in the same world aesthetically, at least as Evil Dead 2. I mean, maybe, certainly not Evil Dead 1, but like at least no. Evil Dead 2. Well, especially the windmill scene. Yeah, yeah. the windmill scene. I mean, in that scene alone, in terms of technique, there was a lot of reverse motion acting that yes. Raimi would have Campbell do. Specifically in that sequence, um, the miniature version of Ash, the one of the mini Ashes, gets impaled by that fork. Uh, Raimi said it required Campbell to begin the scene by dying, returning to life, getting a fork pulled out of him, then running backwards. And <laughs> this became a, like a Campbell trademark throughout the rest of that movie especially. But uh, yeah, I mean... You mentioned some other ones can be Altirian Inc. Do you know Altirian Inc., Tony Gardner-affiliated um, makeup company? you know what they're most famous for? And this is truly a call to, to fame. They are responsible for the design of the costume and helmets that Daft Punk wear. Oh, really? So that's how about that feather in a cap. Congratulations. Oh, interesting. Pretty sweet there. But yeah, they also did specifically the makeup for Evil Ash and Sheila. They were the ones who did the makeup for the two of them specifically. K and B did the rest. I, what I love about this movie when we watch it a million times is I love how in the background you, you'll see it's obviously humans dressed up as skeletons. They're a little thicker. But what I love right. is in the foreground they always use those practical dummy mm-hmm. skeletons. It's just like a skeleton like things. on a cart or something probably. Or exactly. Just, or being like held and walked by like you're on the Sesame Street. The funniest skeleton bit to me was so stupid. It makes In a, in a universe that makes no sense, it's the scene of the Scottish skeletons with the thick red oh. beards. <laughs> playing the bagpipes. Playing the bagpipes with so the hats funny. on. It's so that's stupid right. and funny. It's like, but that's the like movie. Right out of Three Stooges. And Oh, God. Yes. And it's I was thinking movie. about Mac when I was watching it, when the skeletons do the thing with the, uh, when they, they put the drawbridge up and they're going to do the battering ram. 
like it reminds me of the Merry Melodies skeleton dance, the yes. way that they move. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And they're all moving in cool. sync, and they watch. They watch their heads. Watch the uh, the the bridge go down. So cool. I have it's, a fun fact yeah. uh, to throw out there. Do we know uh, what the link to Ghostbusters is here? Oh, I think we mentioned it. A little, I think we mentioned it uh, a little earlier. It's the one of the demons in the pit plays a Stay Puft Man, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, he was a KMB guy, so Billy Brian. That makes sense. Yeah. And, and of course, Tom Sullivan returned once again. He did some work on this. He was the main guy from Evil Dead and did a lot of work in Evil Dead too. It's pretty great that Raimi truly did not leave anybody behind. Right. He really is a prime example of not leaving people behind, remembering the people that got him to where he where he still Although, is today. I'm sure more I people have worked say, on this movie. I don't like the Book of the Dead design. In this. Well, it's they, still too smooth. It's well, still they, too smooth. They, yeah. And they talk about that too. They said they needed to be bigger. Because of those yeah. scenes, you wouldn't be able, the small book just wouldn't work in that way. But True. I agree. I, I do like the the way that it looks. It look, I wish they just w- were a little cruder. You know, uh, I wish that they had done the two books that weren't the real book. Have those be the giant books, so you could mm-hmm. get sucked in and do some more bits with that. But then have the smaller one be the definitive one. But hey, they really fucking blew it. Yeah, I think those the effects of the it. books are are incredible. Like when he's getting sucked into it, yeah. the f- yes. the stuff with the face, like all of that's just so good. And like, I don't know. It's like, yeah, sure. A lot of this stuff seems antiquated by comparison today, but it also seems more marvelous to me. It's like inventive. I look at that stuff. Yeah, it's so inventive. I love it. And not but, and not marvel us. No, not marvelous. But like, yeah, the, I, I agree. Like when he's getting sucked in, and and it's the shot from within the tunnel, and it's like it's swirling, oh, yeah. and his hands are. It's so cool. I love yeah. it. I also have a question though. How stupid is Ash? He keeps reaching for these books <laughs> in the middle, right towards the ha- the mouth, as opposed to like picking them up from the side. But hey, we need more Three Stooges bits, so it's great. And somebody else who worked on this movie, a visual effects supervisor, is William Mesa, who has worked on everything from UHF, Adventures in Babysitting, all the way to like The Fugitive and Blood Diamond, and of course he worked on Darkman. There are, Raimi was shown a bunch of storyboards. From Victor Fleming's Joan of Arc movie way, way back in the day. Now, Victor Fleming famously did Wizard of Oz, um, Gone with the Wind, a, a number of other movies. I think I think Casablanca, right? It's depressing that I've actually forgotten who directed Casablanca, but there we are. Oh, uh, that was Michael Curtis. Curtis? Yeah. Oh, Steven, that. that was Steven Spielberg. Oh, Spielberg. Oh, Spielberg. Yeah. I'm sorry. Because yeah, he did West Side Story also. So That's right. That's right. That's right. Well, anyway, he was he was shown 25. Michael Curtis directed picked, Casablanca. Yeah, he he picked twenty five storyboards from that movie and, and incorporated them into this movie. So a lot of some of the stuff in the background is just old. I, I guess I'm assuming it was like a Universal Pictures production, but a lot of that you'll see some stuff from Joan of Arc uh, in the background, which is pretty cool. And well, you mentioned, and that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, you know, it is kind of cool. Nick, we mentioned it earlier, but like Nicotero also stressed that like every storyboard matched the film like like down to yeah. down to the t and it made it so much easier for the effects guys to fig- figure out what the fuck to do and was it mac or, or you rothman who, who made that point about nicotero talking about if you gave enough money to Ramy? was it you mac that talked about that um you gave him enough money okay maybe not i could have sworn there was a quote out there that nicotero said about how Ramy could work with like oh, two dollars about the it? shots yeah yeah, he just would set up the shots and just get like fifteen shots from one take, and then use them for background for another shot or another thing. Yeah, um, he was really thinking ahead in that sense, trying to get the most out of what they could do with with 
with the skeletons and the, which I think, yeah, the, the, my favorite part of the film is all the skeleton sequences. I agree. That's that scene when Ash is walking and those three puppet skeletons attack him like all at once. It, it's so stupid. I mean, they literally just throw one of them They're at him. They're throwing and he picks them it up at and, him. Like, and, and kicks it and like <laughs> and breaks its back with you know with his foot or with his <laughs> knee so or whatever. Stupid. It's such a good funny sequence. Well, they're they're so they're all just they're just pranksters, and I think you know they all love yeah. to get you know get everyone. And that was one of the things I I noticed in just reading um, you know if chins could kill that they they just loved like they would work tirelessly at a prank. Like there's one that's like uh, during the lunatics shooting, and he talks about how they went through like making like faking permits for a car just to oh. piss off this one guy. It's fucking hilarious. And you could tell that they were probably doing it on the set and they were just trying to get, just trying to piss off like Bruce as much as possible. Like Bruce would, I feel like just got the brunt of it all the time. And I mean, in some cases he probably went to the hospital for it, but like they just, I feel like at the end of the day, they still are all laughing about it. Like they're still like, as long as the goof and the prank was great, all is well. You know? Well, nothing's changed because even just watching this movie, knowing how much they've tortured him over the years, there's still, he'll be riding in the desert and then they'll have a close up of branches smacking him in the face. Yeah. Like, where are, these, where are these trees come from? You know, it's just absolute torture for the poor bastard. But I mean, yeah, the special effects in this are, are so great. And hey, let's, let's all pull out our old man yells at Cloud and say, I, I love the fact that all those skeletons, for the most part, if not for the entire part, are very practical. And it adds to the, we, the charm of the movie is only been enhanced as the years have gone mercifully, mercilessly on, as, as it were. Well, I think it's time to hop in the Delta and give our final thoughts. What the hell was that? Are you trying to kill us? Hey, don't blame me. Just steering wheel. Damn thing jerked right out of my hand. You understand that I had this thing in for a tune-up yesterday and they said they'd go over everything. Yeah, well, you better take it back because the damn thing don't work. The only thing that does work is this lousy horn. Let's start off with Hey, they don't call him the maestro for nothing. Uh, maestro, oh God. maestro Mike Rothman. What do you think? Uh, I want to keep it simple. I and there's nothing like Army of Darkness, and it's just there's nothing. I mean, we we just literally did a whole list of sequels that flipped the script, and you know, and many of them are incredibly inventive. Many of them are incredibly genre defining, but I think even those all struggle to hold a candle to this. I mean, this is it's astounding a movie like army of darkness even exists. I mean, think back to the nineties, like the IP for evil dead wasn't even that strong. I mean, it was more to the point. It was like, they, they, they weren't even really like the biggest financial successes and they still were like, yeah, we can make this happen. And not on top of that, make a movie that has nothing that really is really nothing to do with that IP. Um, you know, it's like, Oh, we're going to, we're going to make a sequel to evil dead, but it's going to be, uh, an, an Arthurian tale. What? Like that, the fact <laughs> that that even happened is fucking crazy. And, in that in that capacity, this is a genre defining genre movie, you know, like a, a, a genre defying genre movie, if you may. And it never half asses itself, you know. It goes all in, or at least as far as Universal would let it. And you know, something we always say on this show is how we got to appreciate the swings, and this is a swing that just managed to go out of the park. And you know, maybe it didn't win the game that day, but in the game, you know, but in the end. It absolutely changed the sport. In a way, it's, it almost feels like the money ball of horror movies, only that very few can ever f- really steal this formula. Mm. And I, I don't know. Who am I kidding? I don't think there's really a fucking formula to this movie. But I, mean, I think that's what makes it so great. But it's, it's looking back now, 
I talked about how I, this is like wine where it's aged better for me. And the reason being is because this is the type of sequel I would just fucking kill for today. You know, it's wild to think that in an era where we're in IP Palooza, sequel Palooza, we're in the most boring era of it. Mm. We're surrounded by sequels that are written off as sequels when in reality, they're just fucking remakes. They're just going back to the pool and, and swimming in the same water. And Army of Darkness isn't that. Like nobody makes Army of Darkness. And I have to respect that. I mean, it, it, it wins more by the years because of that, because they swerved, because they they went for as far as possible. And and everyone's aces in here, especially Campbell. So for me, it's the standard of comparison when it comes to sequels now. It's like, if you could make something like this, shock me, surprise me. That's all I care about when it comes to sequels anymore. I don't, I just, sort of that, whatever. So for me, it's four and a half chainsaws out of five. I love this movie. I continue to love this movie. Who knows? Ten years from now, it could be a five out of five. I just, I just think it's such an anomaly, and it's an anomaly that works, and you got to appreciate that. So, yeah, Wolfman Macronomicon. I did it. Yeah, I did it I right. Think, Congratulations! I think, I, I think you did. Justin did it. We did it. <laughs> and for that, I'm going to give it four and a half <laughs> chainsaws. To echo Mike. I think uh, when I look at the trilogy. Evil Dead still wins my heart, and it's still yeah. a solid five. So I have to give this a, a little bit less. But I think that it understands the assignment. I think it's a solid. No, it's just a solid film. But but I, I agree though, Mike. I think it is it is a comedy horror film. It's not like poking fun at horror movies, Mm-mm. which I think is most of the comedy horror you see today. It's always it's like Freaky or Babysitter. They're, they're kind of like playing on horror films and poking fun at horror films. Cause I just haven't seen like a, a horror, a comedy movie that's the horror driven. That's not trying to do that. That's not trying to be meta. It's not trying to like poke fun at the genre, but man, yeah, they just, there's no reason why this franchise should work. <laughs> all three films are completely very tonally different, but they're all really good and really do what they're trying to do really well whether they were trying to do that initially or not. Um, so for, yeah, for me, it's uh, four and a half chainsaws with, with, with a little um, pit beast. On top, just <laughs> Mr. On top Wait, Mr. Pit, Mr. Pit from Seinfeld? Mr. Pit, or are you talking Mr. About the Pit, pit beast? Mr. Pit and the, and the pit beast is, cool. was an unused uh, television sequel, but uh, they're going to be sitting on top of the chainsaws <laughs> together, like holding hands. All right. And let's go to, uh, what was your nickname again for this one? Death. Uh, it was the death ghoster. Death- Death Coaster, let's hit it. Mike Vanderbilt. So uh, nostalgia is not a dirty word. Mm. Uh, I, I, I feel like it's kind of become that, and it kind of irks me that it's said by writers who built their career on, like film writers, critics and stuff, who built their career on nostalgia, and now it's like, oh, no, nostalgia's not cool anymore. Nostalgia's not a dirty word. But it's even sweeter when whatever it is you're feeling nostalgic for holds up. And Army of Darkness is my hashtag hug me horror. When I watch this movie, I'm 12 years old again. And Army of Darkness is a movie that feels custom-made for 12-year-old boys with exploding skeletons, flying witches, and a wisecracking loudmouth hero. I'll never forget the morning of February 19th, 1993, having breakfast with the family. My dad had gone out and picked up the Trib in the Times so that I cut out the ads and read the reviews, which weren't very good from Ebert. or no, I don't even think Ebert reviewed it. I think it was Wilmington and Siskel uh, reviewed it. And uh, going to see it on the big screen on 35mm back when that wasn't a big deal because every movie was projected in 35mm. 
Uh, you know, people run their mouths about gateway horror, but Army Darkness is a gateway psychotronic cinema because so many people I know saw this movie unaware that it was part of a series and it introduced them to the idea of cult movies. It's weird and wild, unlike anything you've seen. It should have been, could have been a hit, but its reputation in the end speaks for itself. It just took a little bit longer for them local boys, Sam, Rob, and Bruce to make good. Sam Raimi once again takes his influences and skills that he's developed over the course of, you know, at this point, over 10 years of filmmaking, you know, from his days film shooting Super 8 shorts with his buddies in Michigan, but now he's doing it in Hollywood with a lot of those same guys. Army of Darkness taught me the joys of the 80-minute movie, and to this day, after multiple viewings, none of the magic is gone. A truly original movie from one of filmmaking's visionaries. Five chainsaws. Oh, the, the rare five. That's three, uh, from, from that's like three fives from me on this series. Wow. Yeah. Well, I'd like to read this quote that Sam Raimi gave to IGN back in 2015, and he said, I find that the fans of Evil Dead, however weird they may be, they like something different and original more than anything else. You've got to give them something that you think is original. They're a new kind of fan. They're not the usual fan. They appreciate that something's different, and most fans do not. Most fans want to see, I think, comfortably what they're prepared for. They want Superman 2 to be kind of the same as Superman 1, or Spider-Man 2 be the same as Spider-Man 1. But the Evil Dead fan is very different. They want something they've never seen before. That's what they want. It's the weirdest thing in the world. And it's true. It's true seven years after this quote came out because I do feel like people now just want the comfortability of having a movie in capable hands, giving them something that they're more or less expecting based on the trailer or what they've read about it. I'm not sitting here saying there aren't still great movies. There are still great movies. But there is something specifically about this franchise that is refreshing and it was the main reason why we did that uh, flipping the script episode, because all of these movies flip the script in their own unique ways. And this movie in particular, because of that brisk, beautiful, you take out the credits, 75 minute runtime, the theatrical release, you're in and out. This whole thing just feels like one long ending, but it doesn't feel like it has multiple endings. You know what I mean by that? And so as the years have gone on, I think that something like this will age better because we're so inundated by movies that we always talk about and say, ah, God, would have cut off 25 minutes here and there. It have been better if you'd knock off 15 minutes here, if you got rid of the third act or you got rid of the second act and did this and that. What are you taking out of this movie? What scene would you possibly want to remove from this movie? Now, like Mac, I can't say I hold it to the same echelon, that tier that I have the original Evil Dead on, but I will say that is now, for me, on that same tier as the Evil Dead 2. And I do have this at four and a half chainsaws out of five. And I think this, the, the Evil Dead, Ash Williams trilogy, all three of those movies would be in my top 300 movies of all time. And I think that's an incredible feat. Not just because I said it, but I think that's saying something that <laughs> every one of these movies we all think is great in some form. And I think that's... Uh, I mean, I know it's incredibly unique compared to franchises that we've done before and franchises that we'll do after. And uh, this is a special time. And that's why doing these episodes has never been kind of a drag like, oh, God, we got to do Jason Takes Manhattan. Yeah. You know, there's, there's, there's never been that moment, you know, where we're like, oh, God, this episode. Like, I'm always looking forward to revisiting and, and, and discovering and rediscovering. So, yeah, I, uh, four and a half out of, out of five. So, terrific. What can I say? Well, what else can be said? We've said it all about these first three movies, but we have not talked about a return trip to the cabin that happened in the 2010s. 
something I'm personally looking forward to revisiting with a little more distance, um, and that is Fede Alvarez's Evil Dead. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Evil Dead. There was no the. There was no defendant. Right. Am I right? You're okay, I just want to make sure I just got Evil that Dead. Right. Yeah, Evil Dead. So that will be our next uh, big episode. Uh, so make sure you, you check that out before you listen, or like I know a lot of you do. Just make sure you turn up and listen, even if you don't watch the movie. We appreciate that just the same. Mike Vanderbilt, any any plugs you'd like to give out though? Uh, check me out on the Cheap Tracks podcast. Check me out on Windy City Double Feature, and. Uh, if you have a time, go track me down on Sven Tooney, which should be on YouTube by now. Fun times for you on that regard. On that regard, Mac Gerber, what do you have to plug? Anything? Mm. Well, I mean, the Halloweenies, I think we're, we're still coming up with uh, Lake Placid. And then uh, uh, we've got some really cool stuff coming up in the following month. But uh, some of it's a little undecided. So we might we might be visiting some specters. I'll leave it at that. But uh... <laughs> yeah, That's right. We're going to be doing Spectre, the James Bond entry. All right, well, yeah, I guess you could just go ahead and say it. We're actually covering, uh, we're doing a Bond month. We're just covering a no, lot of James Bond No, 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 no. <laughs> Although my dream would be to do a Bond cast, a Bond cast one day. Uh, Mike Rothman, how about you? Well, we got a lot of stuff coming up at the Losers Club uh, where we, you know, do two or three episodes a week. But uh, we have uh, Ghost <laughs> Story. <laughs> if it hasn't no come joke. out yet, we're going to be doing a Dance Macabre uh, side story thing on uh, Peter Straub's Ghost Story, which is an epic very foundational horror uh, tome that you need to definitely read if you love horror. Um, hell of a book. And we're going to be doing a, another Souls Midnight over on Patreon on uh, Haunted Houses. Um, and we'll be discussing uh, Stephen King's new uh, short story slash quasi-novella, Finn. Not to be mm-hmm. confused with Finn Wolfhard. So uh, in addition to that, we're all, speaking of Finn Wolfhard, we're going to be talking about Stranger Things nonstop. Because uh, by the time this episode hits, uh, you're going to, your boy Mike... Uh, Michael Maniac Ash Rothman is probably going to be um, losing his fucking mind because uh, Stranger Things uh, 4 is about to come out and we're going to be talking mm-hmm. all Stranger Things with Talkin Hawkins. So uh, lots of stuff over at Losers Club. Yeah, I'll be on a couple of those episodes that, that Mac and Mike specifically, Mac and Mike Rothman specifically mentioned. But, um, you know, Mike, you mentioned Finn, the Stephen King short story slash novella. You mentioned Finn Wolfhard, the actor from Stranger Things. But Finn also means the end. And that's where we've come to. So we do hope that uh, next time you... Uh, hear that we've got an episode out there that you'll be happy to join us. Join us. Join us. This is the end of our show, for now. We hope you enjoyed this production. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more. <laughs>